1: 18 plus.
0: Showing your good side has many rewards. Become a donor at Griffles Plasma and your plasma can make life-saving medicines. Millions of people depend on these medicines to live healthier, more active lives. And every time you donate with Griffles Plasma, you're compensated. You can receive over $500 the first month. Learn more about plasma
2: and how it helps people at GrifflesPlasma.com. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today.
3: All right, everyone. Welcome to episode 45 of the Team House. I'm Jack Murphy here with co-host Dave Park. Uh, Our special guest here tonight is Jeff Butler. Jeff served as a Navy SEAL officer, and then he went on to serve as a CIA operations officer, and he is today a firefighter. So uh, a, life of, a life of service in so many ways. And uh, Jeff, I mean, this is, these are unique historical times we're living through, and even here on the team house is a unique moment. We have lifted our prohibition against Navy SEALs. We've lifted it for this one episode. I and I I told you earlier you're in the trust tree with the nest and the baby birds like it's all happening right here right now we got we have to make efforts to reach across the divide Mm -hmm. the things that separate us we got to reach across and we got to shake hands and uh, I'm sorry I don't mean to joke about all that all the crazy stuff that's happening in America right now, but uh, we do joke about Navy SEALs quite often and I just hope there's no hard feelings Jeff uh, and you're welcome here. And I really, uh, I do appreciate you jumping in and filling in on short notice, especially and, and disrupting some of your plans.
4: I absolutely yeah. really had no plans tonight. So you you didn't disrupt any of them. <laughs> I, ha- I do follow your occasional jives at the Navy SEALs. And I'm always like, oh, Jack, but I don't engage. It's just like with BK, when he writes crazy tweets, I don't, I just, I let him go behind. I go, you know what, he's doing him. I'm going to just ignore it.
5: But, well, Jack, is- I- Jack did say that you were the test case, so good luck. I hope I represent us well.
3: No, you are, man. I, I have known Jeff for quite a while. I mean, probably since like, since we first started rapping. It was probably like 2013. It was a while back now. Yep.
4: Sounds right. Yeah.
3: And I, it was re- it's been no, really great, though, to, to make your acquaintance. And, you know, I've always known you to be a very smart, very thoughtful person. Um, and yeah i think you do represent the seal teams well because i mean look god's honest truth you guys have gotten a ton of bad press over the last couple of years maybe right maybe it's deservedly maybe not i don't know but um there are a lot of guys out there who served in naval special warfare who are completely down-to-earth good dudes and uh i'm happy to bring those types of voices to the forefront
4: oh i appreciate you guys having me i haven't uh I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't done anything that's me like blackballed by large segments of the population. So, you
5: know. Uh, th- th- never mind. So, uh, Jeff, since this is our first time meeting and and uh, uh, you, for probably most of our viewers, uh, their first time meeting you, why don't, why don't you tell us a little bit about maybe how you grew up or what led you to the SEAL teams, when you became aware of them, you know, just how you got there
4: yeah that's an easy story for me to tell because my uh my dad was the uh, second seal in our family uh his cousin was the first and went through uh, i think he went through like in the late 60s or uh, maybe the mid 60s went through buds uh and then my dad went and uh by the time i was born he had already left the seals and was in the uh, he became a doctor in the, in the navy and was going through med school so i grew up uh, it was just normal to grow up hearing about the seals. And uh, my uncle went through seal training when I was about nine. So I, you know, would hear daily sort of updates on what, how he was doing and uh, what parts of it were hard for him. Cause there's always something that gets somebody, you know, it's, it's not easy for anybody. And uh, so I just, it was just for me, just part of growing up and, I, and my dad still, uh, so when he made it through med school. He was a Navy doctor. So even at his hospital, uh, that he worked out, you know when I'd go have lunch or something over there like he still wears his trident or tried trident and people would be like oh that's Captain Butler the seal you know he was always Captain Butler the seal you know whatever so it was just a part of daily life for me so uh, th- in a way that is super helpful if you're trying to go through something like Bud's because it takes away tons of mystique and takes away that like mystery of oh these must all be supermen and you know these crazy animal PT gods and stuff. And I was like, well, that's not my dad. He's a normal dude. Like, <laughs> well, <Yeah. laughs> I'm a normal dude. I can if they can do it, I can do it. So that's kind of where I where. It, I mean, it was a family family tradition for me. You know, a lot of guys grow up with police dads or fire dads or army dads and do the same thing. But for me, it just was a seal dad.
5: You know. Did you know at that like at a young age that you wanted to be a seal, or was it something that you grew into at a certain point in time?
4: Uh, I was dressing up like an army guy from like as early as we have pictures in our family so I was always kind of into it and then by about I'd say by about eighth or ninth grade I kind of knew I was going to try you know but you don't ever know obviously you're going to make it even, I, even getting accepted is pretty tough so you know but I had the goal in mind and by ninth well maybe by like 10th 11th grade it was pretty it was a pretty firm goal in my in my head like I'm going to do that or try to do this you know which was good because I needed about four years
5: worth of getting ready. And why did, uh, why did you, did you go, you went straight, did you go to college first? I got an
4: ROTC scholarship uh, and I honestly, I'm not sure I would do it that way again if I had the choice, uh, but I knew I wanted to go to college first and did an ROTC scholarship and then went straight from college uh, to Bud's. And,
5: and like, since you are the first SEAL and we haven't kind of been through this before, can you kind of tell us a little bit about like BUDS and what that process was like for you? Yeah, it was, it was
4: miserable. Uh, <laughs> I had trained really hard for about four years because um, I was never been a strong swimmer and I just didn't grow up swimming other than at the beach and I wasn't a competitive swimmer. So the running wasn't too bad for me or any of the other stuff, but I, I had to train a lot of open water swimming. So when I got there, Uh, I never failed to swim, but I, that was always what I was like pushing every single time to pass. Um, and then, you know, some things like the underwater breath holding and the underwater knot tying is just tons of repetitive practice. And I got there and did good on those other, uh, drown proofing. I almost about died. I had a sinus infection, so I couldn't breathe through my nose. Uh, so there's this point where you have to bob up and down with a, a mask in your mouth, um, with your hands tied and your feet tied. Well, it's hard to breathe through your nose if you have a sinus infection and you got a mask in your mouth so I, I failed that twice you get three chances and I passed on my third um and then you know other than that like I had been prepared mentally that it was going to be super cold and you don't really get that until you get there and you're cold constantly uh but I did okay with that and then uh really it's just it was really just a matter of not not quitting and telling myself they are either kill me or roll me out and fail me, and they do roll people out and fail them all the time, so that's always a danger, but that was going to be the only way they got rid of me, you know, I wasn't going to quit.
3: Back in those days, uh, I mean, this is, uh, this is in the 1990s, right? This was in the, this was in 99 is
4: when I started, bud.
3: Okay, okay, so the UDTs had already been uh, done
4: away with at that point. Yeah, my dad was in, uh, he made it through buds and went, actually was at a UDT team first, before he went to a SEAL team, and back then you just interchanged, and that was in the mid 70s, early to mid 70s. And By the time I got through, there was no more UDT teams. I, I think they went away in the 80s, but I don't know that no, for sure.
5: So uh, most of our viewers probably know this, but BUDs is basic underwater demolition slash seal, and then and it's the initial course, the selection and training portion, right? It's uh, is it six months basically it, it, for it was 27 the
4: seven weeks when I went through, and it's it's more basic training than anything else because you're not learning a ton of hard, complicated skills there.
5: Okay, and then uh, go walking back, how are the UDT, the underwater demolition teams and then the SEALs divided before your time? Uh, so you mean, how did they divide the, who did they, how did they decide who went where? Yeah, and what? how did their missions differ?
4: Oh, okay. Um, UD, you know, I wasn't around for UDT, so I, I'm not an expert on it, but really their job was, if you think of the Normandy landings and all the, um, you, in the if you watch Saving Private Ryan, you see all the obstacles on the beach. that they, they look like big uh, rocks with like pipes coming out of them, you know, big rebar uh, links. Well, th- that was underwater also. And then right there at the shoreline, that was really to impale boats and prevent landings. So UDT teams went through and blew all those up, cleared, essentially clear beaches for invasions. That's really the 95% of that mission, as far as I understand it. um, Hydrographic reconnaissance, so reconning a beach, figuring out what obstacles were there, and then then doing the demo to get rid of those obstacles was pretty much the entire mission there. And I I guess it pretty much went away because they just assumed that mission into regular SEAL platoons and decided, we don't need a special team just to do this. Um, But That's what they did.
5: And then the SEALs were more focused on sort of one foot in water or, or land warfare? Uh, I mean, well, in the last 20 years, it's been more focused on land
4: warfare, uh, but I assume, I'll I've been out for a while, but I assume they still have a huge, huge emphasis on diving because that really kind of sets apart the SEALs, or at least think and hope it does, from other units as we, we try to do more of that and be as good at that as anybody else in the military, if not better. And so we do tons and tons of um, like just dives, uh, four hour long dives where you're uh, shooting a heading, you know, making a turn, making another turn and trying to hit a target that might be a ship or a harbor or a pier or something, Um, ship attack.
3: Could you you talk about some of those training missions back in the day about, you know, what you, because this is all pre 9-11 still, you know, what kind of missions you guys anticipated rolling into if,
4: you know, the balloon ever went up? Uh, well, so a perfect example of that is Panama. Um, when the Panama invasion happened, a SEAL platoon went and blew up, uh, Noriega's yacht, which was, a you know, I can't remember, I think this wasn't the canal they swam across. They swam across not a very big body of water.
3: It was a bay, I think,
4: yeah. It was a bay, yeah. It was a really short swim, though, so it was pretty, pretty much the world's easiest combat swimmer operation. It was, like, literally swim 200 yards at this bearing, plant the explosive, then, then go out, so it, it's a bread and butter easy yacht, but that was, That was pretty much what that is what a ship attack or a combat swimmer mission is. It's so say we were going to invade I don't know whatever country country X and we want to take out their ports or block maybe maybe take Coronado as a perfect example. Say we wanted to blow that bridge, Coronado Bay Bridge, because we're invading America. We want to keep that fleet trapped inside the bay. We'll blow that bridge. Well, that's a mission where you just go and plant explosives on all the on the pylons, blow that bridge, and then you're blocking that harbor. So it's, it's really any kind of um, maritime-based ship attack, we call it, or combat swimmer mission. So you may not be attacking a ship, but a lot of times that's what we trained on was planting explosives on the bottom of a ship. You can sink that ship if it's a warship of whatever kind, but it may be destroying infrastructure. It might be planning sensors or listening devices. It could just be infiltrating via sea uh, into, for example, North Korea. Say we wanted to insert into North Korea. Uh, you could do it over the water and that's kind of our specialty is come across the beach and then go and do a mission on land, go back out through the water, rendezvous with a small craft, which would then rendezvous with a larger craft.
5: Wow. And when you're doing all that underwater, like, so you said you could spend hours underwater. How, how do you navigate? Like for, for those of us who, you know, haven't been in, you know, time doing that underwater like how does that happen yeah so like
4: so think of a uh so like an 80, 80 second airborne What? what is they don't they plan in for like a 10% casualty rate on any combat jump something like that you're like you're gonna lose 10% or something of your jumpers that, that's what I've heard anyway
3: well I mean I would be okay
4: but you know someone else <laughs> yeah. might get hurt with combat swimmer you kind of do the same thing so you'll put you have two you have swim pairs so it'd be me and a buddy uh, and you'd send like six swim pairs hoping that four for example made it to the target didn't get lost or compromised so that each swim pair you have one dude who's just driving the compass like literally he is face down in his compass board kicking counting his kicks or counting his or, or have his stopwatch or whatever the other guy is tethered to him and is probably swimming on top of him and he's watching for obstructions and just being aware and his, his swim buddy you know be, be there with him so the, the compass guy is just driving a bearing and you just tr- you have to plan it all out with charts and maps. Assume you did your, your uh, navigation correctly, you're plotting correctly. Uh, and you might plan in a, um, if it's safe enough, if you're coming from far enough distance, you might plan in like a peak where you'll pop up, you know, 600 yards or whatever from the target. Uh, you'll, you'll, in your brain, you'll have um, some markers in mind. Like you'll say, okay, from my map study, I know when I pop up at this point, I should be able to look right and see a bridge and look left and see a lighthouse. So you pop up and you're like, oh crap, the bridge is like behind me and the lighthouse is way over there in the front. So then you gotta reset yourself and be like, okay, how do I correct this? So it's a, it's a lot of trial and error if you're not good at it. Um, and if you don't know you're kicking and you don't know your and you're not able to swim that bearing.
3: In, in the army, we call that dead reckoning where you're just looking <laughs> at the compass and heading straight towards it. Uh yeah. but this I mean that's this is even more hardcore what you're describing, Jeff, because you're literally underwater at night. You have no landmarks, no points of reference, no nothing. All you can do is look at the compass.
4: Yeah. And when you pop up and you're in the right spot, you're just like, Man, I am the greatest combat swimmer that has ever, ever <laughs> served. <in any> <laughs> <place.">
5: <laughs> Every time you're like, Oh thank God. Oh,
4: thank Jesus. But then other times so how, like,
5: how, how oh. does it feel when you pop up and you don't see your target? Oh, it is terrible. You're
4: basically like okay let's salvage this and not embarrass ourselves because it was all training because i never did one of these for real you'd be like oh my god how are we gonna you're like, we're gonna be last you just start thinking of all the ways you're gonna be terrible and how everyone's gonna never let you live this down for months <laughs> that's, that's incredible and we, yeah we. i popped up one time at a pier and i was right in the right place it was awesome and i <laughs> i pop up and i'm like looking around like oh, all right we made it and then i look to my right and there's a dude fishing And he looks at me just like, what the hell are you doing here? And he (laughs) shakes his head and he's like, just reels it in, you know, and casts it out again. Like, sorry, man. It's pretty funny. Didn't expect us to pop up out of the dark sea.
5: So what else can you tell us about Bud's, whether it's general or kind of your experience, uh, you know,
4: uh so the instructor a buds instructor is a special breed of human that's really kind of like a masochist and a sadist well maybe a sadist they just they, they live to torture and they enjoy it and they they relish it not only as like it's enjoyable to yell at people and really know that they're suffering and you're not but then also they they consider themselves the gatekeepers of the community so like i mean they take that thing seriously you know they're they're going to make sure you get the hardest buds that anyone's ever had in history because they want to, they, they have a reputation to maintain. Also, hey, you guys were easy on those guys and you let a bunch of crap bags through. Well, that's so they really took it seriously. And man, it it was funny for like 30% of the time you'd laugh because it was just so absurd, some of the like torture they were putting you through. But then like 70% of the time, I'm like, God, I hate that guy. I really don't. And I really don't ever want to work with him and I don't want to ever see him again. So the instruct but at, towards the end you kind of grow to love it and you're like "Ah, oh, this is fun you know everybody's having a good time because you think you're going to make it at that point you can the ribbing is almost good nature towards the very end but before that it's pure i mean they just drive behind you when you're running on the beach and dude will be sitting in a truck with a pa system just talk the just just talking crap the whole time like you don't need to be here you can do this on the internet now like there's a correspondence course this sucks why don't we just quit there's some guy with your girlfriend right now while you're suffering through this training. I mean, just constant. That really sticks out in my mind as much as anything else is just the constant doing their best to make you want to leave. And they do, man. They'll, they'll, in Hell Week, they'll offer you like a hot chocolate, pizza, a warm bed. They're like, you can come out and get into my warm truck right now. We'll turn the heater on.
3: Is it, uh, is it true that you have to go make sugar cookies when you fuck something up?
4: Oh, totally. You have to get wet and sandy every day, multiple times a day. You just live with sand in all your orifices.
5: What is a sugar cookie?
4: Get, go get wet in the surf and then get roll around in the sand and get sand over your entire body. And then and that's bad enough. Like, that's uncomfortable, right? Oh, that, we're going to do that, but now we're going to go do rope climbs with all that wet sand. All in all. You're like, oh, God, come on, man.
3: Now, now you're going to go run 10 miles, and there might be some chafing involved in all that.
4: Uh, there's all kinds of chafing that goes on there. It got so bad. I mean, for a long time, they had uh, outbreaks of uh, necrotizing fasciitis. Like guys, open sores were getting infected with flesh eating virus because you just have constant chafing and you're in this crap water and, you know, you guys are going to give me PTSD after this podcast and like, I sweating tonight. <laughs>
5: So what so was it what,
3: like a, after, after you graduated, uh, buds, the, uh, the initial torture session and, uh, was it, was it still called SQT back in those days or is it, was it something else?
4: Um, it was, it no, it, it was called STT and it was run by the individual team. So it was really kind of non-standard. Oh wow! Uh, and, uh, yeah. And that's kind of what did it in, um, everybody kind of taught their own SOPs at their own teams and platoons and stuff. So, East coast guys would get a whole different sort of education than the West coast guys. And even teams on the East coast would be different than other teams on the East coast. And people, guys, I guess, weren't getting a uniform enough advanced training curriculum that they'd made it into a formalized class. So now you, you go straight into SQT and jump school and get your trident uh, through that command. Whereas you used to, your trident used to be a, um, a team bestowed ordeal. You know, you would, your team would decide when you got it
1: That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
5: Really, so you, would, you wouldn't get it right when you graduated. buds? you would go on to the STT. Is that like SEAL tactical training or? Yeah, that's what it was. SEAL was- was- qualification training meaning you, at the end of
4: that, you get your trident. So it's essentially getting your trident training. And it was the same thing at STT, but it was your, your command really had the full um, determination of who got the trident and who didn't, like in those old days.
3: It's like uh, way back in the, in the day, before Dave and I um, were even in Ranger Battalion, like, you know who um, they used to have, RIP, the Ranger Indoctrination Program, used to be at each battalion. It wasn't <laughs> consolidated. So oh, really? a pre- previous guest of ours, Emil Praslick, when he was in 275 back in the day, he went through battalion-level rip. He didn't <laughs> go through what, what Dave and I went through.
4: Was it was it harder or easier?
3: He said – he. I remember him telling me once, he said, your squad leaders were basically the ones putting you – your future squad leaders putting you through the selection course. So that, like, they absolutely tortured you.
5: My bet. Yeah. I can imagine it was probably harder because – it was just more personal, more <laughs> personal attention yeah yeah uh,
4: yeah yeah and at the end at the end um, of it so when i went through stt at my team at the end of it you know they beat the trident and everybody walked by and punched the trident into your chest and then you had a big beer party and bought a keg and, i mean it was it was fun we,
5: i enjoyed it but i bet it's more professional now so and where where were you assigned east coast west coast uh yeah, which those, team if Okay. I started
4: at SEAL Team Eight, and then was a plank owner when they created SEAL Team Ten, back in 2002, maybe I think it was.
3: So you're an officer. I mean, you get you get to the team, and I, you're you know what a SEAL platoon leader? Uh, assistant platoon leader. Mm-hmm. Assistant platoon leader.
4: Yep. Everybody starts out as a either a you could either be a pl- assistant. or oh, every officer starts out as either an assistant platoon leader, or you could be a third. Oh, what they called it, which was really pretty good deal. He had essentially no responsibility. You're another enlisted guy, a worthless enlisted guy. is pretty much what you were as the third officer. <laughs> he had no rating, no no true skills. You were just a, another officer. But I was a, a, a second lieutenant, a second officer in charge.
5: And how? I mean, how was that for you? Like being being a new officer and a new seal. Uh, like, how was your relationship with your team, with the enlisted guys?
4: Uh, it, I think it's tough. That's why I said if I had to do over again, I probably would have enlisted first because you you don't know anything as a brand new guy. Uh, but as an officer, you're still expected to be, you know, obviously kind of, quote, unquote, in charge of stuff. But you, if you were smart, you understood you didn't know anything and you really relied on your uh, senior enlisted guy in the platoon because so they put it in the navy it's a chief an e-7 they put the the chief of the platoon in with the second officer for obvious reasons to basically to keep that guy from killing himself and others and uh you just had to i mean you just you had to first admit to yourself i don't know what i'm doing because i'm a brand new seal but i'm an officer so i've got some responsibility and and i tried to do it this way like you just would defer to your chief and you know you'd be like hey what are we doing here how do we do this and everybody kind of knew that's what you did but you still had to sort of be in charge so it was a it's a hard uh it's a hard line to keep and i wasn't great at it all the time i tried to be good at it i mean I, there's a bunch that i do over with like i just was a 22 year old you know like trying to be a new seal and also an officer it's not ideal um i think it, the ideal way would be to serve an enlisted period or even maybe two Uh, maybe six years you know as an enlisted guy then become an officer would have been more the ideal I don't know why we that's a whole philosophical thing about the U.S. military I don't know why we do it though the fire service does nothing like that I mean it'd be absurd to even think a fire officer would show up and be in charge of a fire company it just doesn't happen that way right I I totally agree with it like I've worked eight years before I became a fire officer like learned how to fight fire built up my reputation and my uh skill set and my sort of cachet or whatever you want to call it of authority before i actually assumed a role of authority you know in the military we just kind of thrust them into it you're in charge you don't know shit but here you go <laughs> i don't know why we honestly i don't know why i do that I don't, maybe jack knows the historical uh, aspects of that but i don't know why we've gone down that road in the u.s military i
3: i, I don't offhand to tell you the truth but I, I have to imagine that it's just because militaries are probably you know the idea is it's built for war and people are dying left and right so there's just an assumption You know, today our military is much more professionalized, you know, but it comes out of a tradition where I, you know, the infantry were a bunch of nugs that, you know, on the off season for when they weren't farming, they would be, you know, essentially drafted into the king's military and sent off to fight and maybe die. So I I don't know. It's some of those like those pre-World War II even traditions that, you know, the military still has lingering and maybe it is time to overhaul a lot of those ideas.
4: It may come from the British tradition, too. I know the Navy is hugely influenced by the British Navy. And there was a whole, it was the officer class, you know, it wasn't a, it was yeah, a, yeah. it was a, it was sort of a whole separate upbringing, you know.
3: Is that true in the SEALs, too, that like the, the officers have a separate mess hall and all that sort of stuff?
4: No, we, we always, uh, or at least when I was in, um, at, at the team, no, it was not true at all. The officers, <laughs> the officer, you had one platoon room. And in that platoon room, the officers had a computer because they had to do crappy computer work. But then if we went on a ship, like we went on the 6th Fleet command ship or whatever for however long, we would actually not, we would tell our guys not to wear their insignia uh, so nobody on the ship knew what their rank was or rate was. And that way they didn't get sucked into sweeping the deck or painting the hull or any of that crap. And we just kind of tried to keep it all as like, these are the seals and not the enlisted and the officer seals. Um, So we we didn't have we don't have officer quarters or any of that stuff. Oh, that's that's
3: cool. Just, and it's interesting that you guys tried to kind of like break through that that caste system.
4: Well, and our guys would have just never let us live it down, had we not? <laughs> <was a> <laughs> we didn't really have a choice. You're, you're almost doing it for self-preservation more than anything else. <laughs> These guys aren't going to accept this. This is crap.
3: And so you mentioned going out with the fleet, and I mean, back in those days, the uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, but the idea was that SEALs would be the direct action element for the fleet when they were out at sea.
4: Yeah, and that still is the case. Um, if, if, you're a te- if you're a SEAL platoon attached to um, SOC, your Special Operations Command Europe, um, and that Navy Admiral that's in charge of 6th Fleet in Europe wants to use a SEAL platoon, he, can, he draws that SEAL platoon and he controls that SEAL platoon, it's... All depends on what theater you're deploying to. And so the platoon doesn't belong to
3: a, uh, you know, a, um, a theater special operations command.
4: It does, but then the it does, yeah. So SOC Europe would own that European based SEAL platoon. But then if if um, naval forces Europe goes to SOC Europe and it's like we need a SEAL platoon, generally SOC Europe is not going to be like, well, we're not giving you a SEAL platoon. That's, I mean, that's their job is to give them that SEAL platoon. So that it's a pretty. But if you're in Afghanistan, you, then you're going to go to the Gisota for mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. wherever they need you. But so if you're in Southcom or if you're in uh, Ucom or Africom, you're going to kind of do whatever missions those commanding generals or admirals need that are SEAL missions, obviously. You know,
5: would would there be contention amongst um, or between like a ship's captain and a SEAL team platoon commander? O, uh, over taskings or missions or you know in the army there's the idea and I'm probably in the navy too but the idea commander's intent this is what I want you to do but sometimes that gets into micromanagement like this is how I want you to do it did you guys experience that at all no th- that would
4: be where the conflict would come is if they were telling you how to do it so if uh oh no it, I never experienced it um our the 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 naval leadership that was non-SEAL leadership that I ever experienced in my short time in just said, here's the mission. Here's where you're going to be on this ship or whatever platform it is. And then this ship captain is going to get you where you need to go. As far as what you do and how you do it, you know, that's going to be however the tasking comes down. They were always extremely professional knowing, you know, their job is, they're surface warfare specialists. They're not SEALs. They don't ever pretend to be. Their job is to get that ship where it needs to go, do what that ship is supposed to do, if that means getting within three miles of the shoreline to launch a SEAL uh, element, then that's what they'll do. They aren't are going to tell you how to do your job as a SEAL, at least in my experience. Which was nice. In fact, our, uh, I was on a ship one time with a SEAL platoon, and the guy was, uh, the captain was extremely supportive. He would, you know, he got on and was like, "Hey, you know, special operations on the ship. This is right after 9/11. You know, don't." This is a clandestine mission. Don't be emailing home your families and saying we're doing secret stuff, you know. And we're these guys are going to be on board, and don't try to rope them into our you know daily activities because they're doing their own training and whatnot. So it was kind of a very uh, supported relationship there. Now that might not always be the case, but uh, it wasn't. Did you school. get
5: ahead of the chow line
4: privileges while you are. <laughs>
5: no. You would
4: never try to that. You wouldn't try to do that because that's kind of it. That's abusing your. Uh, your I?
3: That's how I describe it. Well, is it? it's different then from what you're describing between a, a SEAL officer and a, and a naval officer generally that, you know, there isn't the huge separation between the officers and the enlisted. And I mean, you tell me, Jeff, but is, is that because you guys are, you know, your naval commandos, you know, you're kind of boots on the ground, and it's just the relationship you have when you're in a, a small unit team like that?
4: Yeah, that's by design. That's why officers enlisted go through the same buds go through the same program it, it is very much culturally ingrained in the seals and by design uh so it's the officer still has the ultimate responsibility and uh, bears mm-hmm. the fault when the mission goes awry and it's i mean he will he, you know there's regular officer stuff involved i used to do all the paperwork and the admin stuff and we had to write evals and fit reps and but as far as the tactical seal operation stuff you were a fool not to rely on the um, enlisted guys in your platoon that generally have way more experience than you, and those matters. And really, there your job is it, it, a good. I, in my opinion, a good SEAL officer's job was get the get the assets and support that they can get. So that's a big military, you know, uh, push. You know, like convince JSOC to give you a uh, uh, Hilo support or convince tf-160 to provide this air cover you know that was more of an officer job like hey use your your leverage as an officer to get us resources whereas and then the enlisted guys you you might tell your chief hey i want you to outline out this op for us like tell me how we're going to do this that's in my opinion that's how a smart officer worked and then he took care of the more like right tactical details brief and right yeah the you know getting it all laid out and all the assets laid on and all that stuff that's how it's supposed to work but yeah, as far as the the stratification, it just didn't exist. It wasn't, you would, you didn't succeed as a SEAL officer if you tried to do the, uh, I'm an officer, you'll listen. You're going to listen to me. <laughs> Shtick. That didn't really go super far in the SEALs. I, I actually saw an enlisted guy, a guy punch an officer in the face one time on deployment. And now I did get sent home. There There are certain lines you can't cross. But I mean, like, he, I think the guy kind of maybe deserved it. I don't know. I, I didn't see the start of the argument, but, you know, he only got sent home because a bunch of other people saw it. So had it, had it happened just within the platoon room, you know, the officer probably would have tried to make it go away and sort of been like, Hey man, everybody had a hot temper. Like let's
5: cool down. But What size element would you guys typically work in?
4: Uh, a squad. Or, or a squad of eight or a platoon of 16 would generally be the biggest, unless it was just some large operation, you know, uh, but generally it was a squad. Sometimes even a fire team, which was four guys, just depends. So um, Yeah. Uh, so Jeff, you get in there
3: 1999 and now you're going out with the fleet and you're doing, I, I presume a lot of training. Um, what happened in, in, you know, the run up to, and then 9-11 happening?
4: Yeah. So we were finished. We were scheduled to deploy October of 2001. I mean, we were scheduled 18 months out to deploy that date. And we were, I'll never forget, obviously, like everybody always remembers where they were we were down in, uh, Florida training with, um, AC one thirties down in the Gulf coast area and uh, had been doing call for fire mission training all morning or actually all day and all night and then uh, went to bed had another had a full week of it late on went to bed that monday night and then woke up tuesday morning and all of a sudden that that was 9 11 and uh those assets all immediately deployed or, or basically shut down the training to get ready to leave and they sent us back to virginia and uh we deployed when it was at that point. It was like two weeks later. That was our last training block before our deployment. Uh, so it was a, it was it was heady because you were. I don't know if you were in at that time, but you were like, okay, this is it. This is why we train. Like, this is, this is the good stuff. Let's do it. And uh, we're very. It was exciting to me. I mean, I was 23 years old or whatever it was, and was looking forward to it. And uh, just kind of had it as a sense of, okay, this is what we're doing. This is what we were trained to do. And let's go do it. So, to me, it was exciting.
5: And then, so it happens, and then what, so did you deploy? What happened did, Yeah, Yeah, we deployed, we were a,
4: we a, um, a UCOM platoon, and meaning we were supposed to deploy to UCOM, and we were a winter warfare platoon. So, uh, you know, our luck is 9-11 happens, and uh, <laughs> obviously none of those guys were in a winter warfare location. So we continued to uh, Germany, my sister platoon, went also over there and then um, they ended up getting rerouted to CENTCOM and we ended up going to Kosovo and uh, we we never went to Afghanistan right after 9-11. My, my sister platoon went and uh, did all the recon and the advance work for Camp Rhino and basically were some of the first US units on the ground after the SF teams and CIA and all.
0: Showing your good side has many rewards Become a donor at Griffles Plasma, and your plasma can make life saving medicines. Millions of people depend on these medicines to live healthier, more active lives. And every time you donate with Griffles Plasma, you're compensated. You can receive over $500 the first month. Learn more about plasma and how it helps people at grifflesplasma.com.
2: Being a parent can be really challenging.
4: And then uh, we, we just went and did Kosovo stuff and then did a bunch of training and came back home in April of 2002, kind of having what we thought at the time, kind of having missed the war. At the time, everybody thought like, oh, this thing's going to be over in like eight months. We're going to wipe out the Taliban and the Al-Qaeda and come, everybody's coming home. And so we, it was a real big disappointment because we thought we kind of missed the boat.
3: So that's, that's interesting, Jeff, because, uh, you know, you were having that back and forth uh, this uh, today on Twitter with Ron Moeller. If you had crossed paths in Afghanistan when you were both at the agency, you and Ron were in Kosovo at the same time as well.
4: Oh, I didn't know that. I'm good for him. Yeah. That, yeah. I, that's what we had really been training for that whole workup, because that was the only mission in town at the time was uh, K4 operations working for NATO. So we were, man, we were boned up on surveillance and reconnaissance and all that kind of stuff. And it was fine while we were there. It was cold and snowy and we, did some okay stuff, but it just was I mean, it was just such a deflating feeling. Like you know, and you know, like we the guys that blew up freaking New York City and killed a bunch of Americans are five thousand miles from where we are. And we're over here watching smugglers cross the Albanian Kosovo border.
3: Did you guys get to do any ops though while you were there?
4: Yeah, I mean it, yeah, but it was all it just surveillance and reconnaissance type stuff. Nothing nothing exciting. I mean, we did some prisoner transfers of war criminals not, not even not even high level war criminals just thugs we did some we did some uh, maritime stuff with Six Fleet that I was talking about um, and it was fine it was as a mature 43 year old now I get like everyone's got their role you know but as right, a 23 right. year old new SEAL you're like I'm
5: going to the freaking show or I'm going to be pissed you, right. know, yeah. you want to go to the main show right that's what you had been doing, doing all your training for that's why you you know signed up exactly so it was disappointing to me personal
4: on a personal level pretty disappointing because and again i thought everything was done also i had no idea if you would have told me there's 16 more years of this or whatever happened no, yeah
3: no one believed that
4: (laughs) i'd have been like okay cool i'll be patient then you know so after
3: that deployment i mean what's what's going through your head you're you're thinking i will i missed the war and now i got to go find something else to do
4: uh, I, d- I definitely had the sense that I missed that war, although Iraq was just starting to get, like, enter into the consciousness of around this time. So it was around 2003, obviously, is when that started heating up. So I was like, ah, Iraq, uh, you know, And I was like, man, I'm going to put in uh, an application at the CIA and just see what happens. And I did. And then uh, and then I just also decided, you know, I, I had an international affairs degree. Uh, and studied international politics and and then said so that's a good fit for the cia is a good fit for someone with that background and i was like i can use that degree i can probably get in and keep doing al-qaeda focused stuff and so i kind of just then made up my mind like i'm gonna i'm gonna leave and pursue that and honestly that's such a long application process that i applied to uh, grad school too because like crap i might not even get this job and i gotta have a backup plan so I, funny story, I applied to grad school and the CIA at the same time, and then also applied to the CIA's intern program for graduate students, um, thinking like, okay, if I get in grad school, I'll do this intern program. Mm-hmm. So I applied both the regular clandestine service training program, which is the primary DO training pipeline. And I applied to this, you know, intern program at the same time well, I got a phone call saying like, hey, we want to talk to you about the coming to the CIA. And I'm instantly thought to myself oh this is the intern program like okay good cool I'm gonna go to grad school become an intern and went back and forth with this guy he probably thought I was a moron so for like a good five minutes he's like yeah I really need to like start asking you these questions now I was like well I haven't even got accepted to grad school yet he's like no no I don't care about grad school like this is for the CST program this is like to become a CIA you know case officer operations officer i was like oh crap
3: this is the real Yeah, You job. guys had
4: play it off like, yeah, right, right, yeah. <laughs> well, I did. So, like, I mean, by that point, I was going to, like, orientations at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Like, I was ready. Like, I'm going to grad school. Like, my brain was flipping into grad school mode, and then all of a sudden, like, I'm getting phone calls from the CA. Like, oh, crap, I got to make some decisions. And ended, ended up uh, accepting that job and not going to grad school at that time. I went later, but uh, it was...
3: What, what was that recruitment process like for you? I mean, you're a SEAL officer, so I mean, you're a pretty tough dude, uh, but now it's like a whole different can of worms that you're walking into here.
4: It's a completely different world. You're almost at a disadvantage being a, a SEAL officer because you're, you know, you're you're in front, coming from the world of brute force to the world of gentle persuasion, and uh, I, so, I, yeah, I, I mean, I struggled in the training, so the recruitment is, um, is not, it was fine. Like, I, I just applied. I didn't, get sought out I did the I applied online and uh it's a, a very extensive interview process and background checks and polygraphs and all that stuff and, and made it through all that but then in the training part of it it was a it's a it's a change of culture having to learn how to coerce something out of someone in a way where you're almost convincing them they want to give you things as opposed to like kicking a door down and taking something because you're a SEAL team you know
3: did you ever have any moments at the farm where like, you know, you wanted to like reach across the table, like, listen, motherfucker.
4: <laughs> you do. And do, and I kid you not guys do it in the farm. They generally get past not good grades. And they, <laughs> they generally get told that's not going to work here. Uh, I, I didn't do that. I wanted to do it plenty of times, but I would just would get flustered. Like, man, it, you would like face a role player and it'd be like a 60 year old woman. You know, who you're supposed to be stealing secrets from, and then she just and these instructors are amazing. They'll show up, and they're all officers of the CIA that do this job, this training job. And they would show up, and she would just burst into tears and like my fam, my mom is sick. I've got to get to America tomorrow. I need money and help me. And you're just like, ah, well, I don't even know what to do here. Like it would, I mean, that kind of stuff would throw me for a loop all the time. I would come out of there sweating, like, oh my god, this is terrible. So it was a, just a totally different world completely
5: different world. I had to learn finesse and manners and empathy. Yeah. Yeah. You said that uh, for your train up and and your deployment as a SEAL that you guys had like the reconnaissance and surveillance aspect down. Uh, When you went uh, for the clandestine service training and then, you know, we're learning counter surveillance. And things like that. Did you feel like your experience with surveillance training with the SEALs had prepared you, or was it um, was it was it completely different? Did you I mean, did you learn Was it a new world? Yeah, there. Yeah, some. It was good in the sense of um, uh, so
4: in the SEALs surveillance and reconnaissance is a generally a standoff, uh, maybe like a mile or, or more out with vit, you know uh, optics and sort of, you might have different elements surrounding a target and you're all collecting data. Surveillance in the CIA is a much different deal. It's a closer up, um, intimate almost kind of thing where you're trying to blend in to the surroundings and then also not be discovered by, like you can throw on a, a ghillie suit and a hide site as a seal and lay up in the mountains and be looking down into a valley and you're fine. You can't in the CIA surveillance world, you've you're gotta be in that city on the street, not getting detected by your surveillance target or, or if you are knowing that and peeling off and letting someone else assume surveillance. So it was, yeah, it was a totally different, the whole thing was a whole different world for me. I, there was not, honestly, a lot that translated over from the SEALs to the CA, other than maybe like self-motivation and sort of getting the job done, you know, like that that's a huge part of the CA, much, much more so than the Navy, because uh, you're an individual, and really you're policing yourself. A lot of the times you're acting as your own boss your own uh, motivator like you know there's nobody it's uh i mean there is people above you that are kind of forcing you out there to collect intelligence and meet assets and stuff but really it's up to you to be self-motivated so that part of it was helpful but that's about the only thing that translated over <laughs> it was a completely I, different world
3: i think it was uh our buddy uh james powell who we've had on the show also and he's telling me people ask him like Man, how many pull-ups do I have to do to make it in the CIA? <laughs> like, what's my two-mile time got to be? You're like, dude, it has nothing to do with that. Like, yeah. absolutely nothing to do with that.
4: Especially on the in the tr- so there's the traditional side of the operations world, and then there's like the paramilitary sort of everybody. It's heard about. You know, everybody envisions CIA officers with guns and out. I don't know, doing paramilitary. Even even
3: though the banner image for this very interview is you with a Kalashnikov <laughs> and all right. this paramilitary shit on.
4: Right. I do, yeah, that's probably misleading to a large degree because I was not in that world. I was only because I was in Afghanistan, but there was a huge, I don't almost dare say the majority of regular uh, operations officers really saw the Afghanistan-Iraq mission as sort of this outlying, like, mm-hmm, that is mm-hmm. not, that kind of stuff is cowboy stuff. Like, the, they really think of the real CIA work in the ops division as being Europe and Russia and China and embassy parties and back alleys and sort of what you think of in the 80s, um, spy movie.
3: espionage films yeah
4: so the afghanistan iraq the ctc world is really different in the ca and is, is a kind of a standalone it's a behemoth now because of post 9-11 but it was really kind of a stepchild before that and uh, didn't get a lot of love and was kind of thought of as like a. I mean i when i said i wanted to go to ctc when i was at the farm people were like, what? like that's not where you made your name you know you made your name in venezuela and russia and china and stuff you know but again, I was still in that, like, oh, man, I'm in this Al-Qaeda yeah. killing mode. I need to get over there and fight terrorists. But sure. it, became, it became a huge behemoth, and now is a, sort of a, you know, you can get ahead going there now, obviously. So
3: uh, before we leave the the training aspect of it, I mean, what, what would you say was the biggest thing you struggled with then at the farm, in the training, and trying to wrap your mind around this uh, new mission that you had?
4: Uh, so, and so I should clarify, I was a there's it's a it's hard it's weird to describe. Um, so the CIA has different divisions. There's an, an mm-hmm. analysis division, there's an operations division, there's a techno- technology section division, if you want to call it. Uh, director, it's really what they call them. I was in the operations director, the DO, the NCS, but I was a um, and, and came in as a CST. So the CST is like um, think of it as the kind of the bread and butter CIA officer. That's they hire you, um, as a generally they've all had careers. All, they didn't, they don't come right out of college. They have business careers or law careers or military careers or some part of a career. They're not 22 generally. They generally have some experience. And they take that group of that cadre of people they hire and they make them CMO, collection management officers, uh, support staff officers, and case officers or operations officers. You pick a track, all of you are certified as an operations officer, a case officer. That's mm-hmm. a, the point. It's called a core collector. They have this core of people that can they can send out to collect intel all over the world, and then they have um, it's think of it as like an MOS and the, and the a special forces. You're a, you're a an, you're a green beret, you're a special forces soldier, but you're also a calm guy. kind of similar to that. So I was a CMO by designation that went out and did CMO tours, OO tours. I never did a, a staff operations officer tour, headquarters, just for whatever reason I never did. Um, so anyway. Um, so you're going through the training and they're training you to be a core collector. So that that really means developing a, a source, getting this person to trust you. Um, well, it starts with identifying who you want to be. So I could go recruit a, a gas station clerk at the come and go in Washington DC, but is that really gonna not do helpful. a lot for me? is that gonna do a lot for my knowledge of the inner workings of the government? Probably not. So you had to identify who you wanted to recruit, identify someone that was had vulnerability or motivation to work for America, and then you had to develop them and convince them to do that. That's really, that's hard, man. It sounds, in the movies, it looks easy. In real life, it's not, because uh, you just, people have, people, imagine if I someone approached you, Jack Murphy, and was trying to convince you to you know, provide info on Ranger Battalion or whatever else. Like, they're gonna have to get through this shell of, of like reluctance.
3: They're gonna to have to come with Russian hookers, <laughs> uh, wheelbarrow of right. gold. I mean, yeah.
4: you gotta decide what it's gonna to take to make you want to do that, and that's throw a dog thing. a bone here, you know. <laughs>
5: that was the hardest part. Was like, the it's like convincing a bunch of people to marry you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, you know. I mean, you know, telling you know, selling them on the benefits of why they should hitch right, hit, right. hitch their hitch their trailer to you, basically.
4: That was the hardest part. Was just learning how to it's really it is i almost i always in my brain likened it to trying to convince a woman to marry you or at least date you like it's as difficult as that how do i get this person to want to hang out with me on that road it's how do i get this person to want to hang out with me and give me secrets from their country so that was tough especially for a a, uh, not very i mean not super mature 24 year old or whatever i was it's gung-ho like i'm a badass seal (laughs) I can do anything. Anyone would give me information. Come on. I mean, that's
3: just <laughs> Jeff, could, I, I know, you know, I don't want to tread on uh, anything that could be sensitive, but speaking in, in generalities, could you tell us about any opportunities where you got to do that in real life and identify a potential asset and walk them through the recruitment pitch and all that?
4: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it specific details of it.
3: Not, not specific details, but I was in a country and I identified a person and tell us what that relationship was well, like. I, that I we tell you,
4: I'll, it's easier for me to give you an example of where it didn't work. And, you, and like, I can tell you like, and so in every country in the world, uh, Americans and Russians in the espionage intelligence real bump against each other and are constantly playing against each other. And, and we, and we both know it, they know it, they see us as the sort of like John Wayne honest to a fault kind of like can't keep our intentions masked and we and we see them as these brutish sort of will do anything (laughs) to accomplish what they need to do and then we're we're on these dividing lines so it's almost just it's almost absurd honestly when you walk up to each other and you know what each other is trying to do so it's just this game so I played this game with this large burly alcoholic Russian guy at a party in Europe for like a night I mean, we just went back and forth we could both just after like 30 minutes we could both tell this is going nowhere like you're not convincing me and i'm not convincing you and we just kind of were like ah fuck it and we just <laughs> drank, some, <laughs> drank some alcohol and like agreed disagree and like i mean so but that you know like at a certain point that's the beauty of it is like you kind of realize this is going nowhere and you treat it that way and then who knows you hope three months later the guy calls you on the phone like man i i enjoyed our drinking let's meet again so like of course, that didn't work for me that one time. And that's why I could tell that story. But like, that's kind of what you had to do. You just had to kind of read the room almost. And they're, they're definitely, that was a good example of a, an extremely tough target. And we have them all over the world. People that just, they can't even talk to us and as Americans. You know, they go and report it to their host service and all that stuff.
3: Are are those general, uh, those, uh, those stereotypes you mentioned, the CIA officer, honest to a fault, can't hide what the fuck they're really trying to do. (laughs) And the, and the Russian who is like the KGB, Boris and Natasha stereotype twirling their mustache. I mean, is that
4: real? Uh, It is to a large degree. It is because we are, we're just so open as a society. Like we, I mean, we don't, you know, they, they know we operate under certain restrictions and laws and rules and, and for the most part we do no, they're different in espionage world, and we can, there are ways we can do things that surprise them. I'll just put it that way, but, like, for the most part, we can't do half the stuff that they can get away with doing, um, and I mean, that's okay. We were okay with that. We'd still operate that way, and, uh, but, yeah, no, it's totally like that. There's, and then, you know, every culture, every country's got their reputation, and their um, just kind of their MO, and, and it's weird. It doesn't always correspond with the
2: Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today.
4: So like in American eyes, we won't name a country. We'll say country-wide. They're a great ally. We think of them as this beacon of democracy. Uh, We we see them as... uh, Our sort of our spirit animals, you know, in this region of the world. And that's great for the population, but then we, their intel service we see is this conniving evil lying, like, can't trust them. They're always out to get us. Like, it's weird how that will happen. And it does happen quite a bit uh, with a bunch of different countries. And they have to be that way because they're trying to survive and we get it. But like, it's just funny how the public persona and the intel persona of various countries is different sometimes.
3: And, And so you're saying like, you would be like, in a cafe trying to pitch an asset and there'd be like a Russian there trying to pitch the same asset and you guys so you guys are running across each other like that.
4: Uh, that that'll happen yeah in european capitals that kind of stuff happens all the time it, it mainly at parties like dip parties and um and it's i mean that, that those are it's like the i don't know how you explain it but that's really just the kind of the meetup place like nothing serious is happening in those parties or in those cafes that's kind of the introductions and you know, just kind of the place where the kickoffs happen, you know. It's the dating app, if you
5: will. <laughs> what was it like did, going from a close-knit team environment to an environment where it, you were on your own? Was that much of a culture shock for you? Or did you, did you have any difficulty adjusting from, like, that tight-knit camaraderie to just being out there by yourself?
4: Yeah. So I was, I was lucky enough. I, I'm a generally, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't say like a solitary person. I like being alone. I thoroughly enjoy working on my own and I'm, I've always been that way. So that part of it wasn't hard, but then the, yeah, the part of, um, so I was lucky. I had half my CIA career. I was in a more of a team environment, like in Afghanistan. It wasn't, we had a, a base, a tight knit base with so many CA officers that we all were very close and worked hard together. And then I was in a a European station where it was more on your own. And uh, I I didn't really struggle with it. It's different. For me, it's a difference I liked, because I kind of like being doing my own thing and just being in charge. It was a nice change, almost in a sense, because I liked just being in charge of my sort of stable of responsibilities. I didn't have to worry about how much people below me and how a unit was performing i just really had to worry about how i was performing for that period of time um so i liked it Uh, but it is totally different and and you never really were fully alone you always had support staff um and and people back at headquarters a a good buddy of mine on on the twitter uh jack knows um he was worked at headquarters you always could reach back to those guys at headquarters and they'd do whatever they needed for you and you had people at the station that would always be you could it would, if you say, hey, I need, I'm gonna go meet this guy. I don't trust him. I'd like two of you guys to come and just overwatch our meeting. And they would, t- everybody would be like, oh, hell oh, yeah, look, that sounds awesome. Cause that's an easy job and it was fun and you gotta do some fun stuff. So you always had that resource there, uh, but it was up for the most part, an individual job but I liked that, it didn't bother me. But
3: it's, it's on you as the case officer to like go out and get that cheddar, right? And the station chief yeah. is expecting you to bring in, you know, fresh meat for the grinder.
4: That's a hundred percent, and you are the one that pays the the man if you don't. Like reflect it <laughs> reflected totally on your eval.
1: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? In slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW report were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You did not. It's
4: a high pressure job. Uh, there has been cases in the U.S. government of, this might seem shocking, CIA officers that have lied and made up sources and um, just fudged the books to get those numbers because you had to. It was a
5: It's a little high-pressure deal, you know. So was there like a quota for you or was it just sort of somebody above you with a general sense of this person is doing work and making progress? Uh, I wouldn't say there was a quota, but there was each, uh,
4: in my experience, each station or theater you went into you had a an idea of what a motivated case officer would do in that area. So they might have an idea of what you should accomplish. It was never necessarily laid out in a metric format, like you will do this, this, and this. It was more kind of a unwritten thing. And it's, a, and it's like any other job. There's always politics and, um, and the other stuff involved. That's, as so the, the CMO part of my career there but when I deployed as a CMO, for example, it was a, it was nice in the sense that the pressure was not there to recruit and do the um, identifying and spotting as much of potential assets. It wasn't a, that part of it is like a secondary part of that job. It was more collecting all the intel that comes in, writing it up, figuring out what's important and what's not. So that was kind of an, almost a nice change, in the sense that I didn't have that pressure in that in that tour anyway.
5: Yeah, but you know, and a CMO you covered it before, but it's Collection Management Officer. And would you have like several collectors underneath you or, or not yeah, necessarily you, underneath you, but. They weren't underneath you. But yeah, you, you would manage. Um, so I was a CTC
4: CMO on that tour. So I would manage the officers that were collecting anything involving terrorist issues in Europe. So anything that involved terrorist issues in Europe would come through me, the products that they've collected. And I would sort them out and figure out what was important and what was not write up tell them to write up what i thought needed to be written up as an intel report or i would say hey leave this guy he's crap you know don't worry about it because it's your kind of your job to know what we know and to know what we don't know and then to tell them this is what we don't know you need to get this we don't need this guy telling us all this stuff about um the muslim brotherhood we don't give a shit we know everything there is to know about him i appreciate that you're talking to him but it's just not helpful so that was kind of your job in the cmo world
5: and where would would you work with analyst like how would you just like fact check fact check everything that they would send you to see uh, like against a, a database would you know would you work with analysts like how would you determine and, and then would you guide them and say hey these are we need people with access to this kind of stuff
4: yeah you it wasn't necessarily fact checking although that's a good description of it, it was more like a it was like saying, we already know. you kind of have to know your target, first of all, uh, so that when you see something come in, you instantly know, that's something we want to know, and this is not. If you weren't sure, yes, you would send it to an analyst and be like, hey, do we need to know this? And then they would come back and be like, yeah, we'd love you to collect on that. And you would then redirect that to the case officer and be like, yeah, they want to hear more about this. Keep, keep going on this target. Or they might say, ah, we already know that. Don't worry about it unless he can tell us this separate thing. So then you would re- redirect that to the case officer and be like, hey, they want to know this separate thing. If you can redirect them to this, great. If not, you just need to cut this guy away. So it's really kind of a, like you said, it's almost kind of a, a middleman between the analysts and the CEO and the case officers managing what's coming in to the analyst. Because the whole, I mean, people may not know the whole job of a case officer is collecting info that's going to analysts, consumers of, products so analysts on one side that are writing up products for government officials that's essentially the job Uh, if they don't want to hear it the government officials don't want to hear it and the analysts don't want to hear it then they're or not don't want to but already know it or don't think it's important then we don't collect it it's a waste of time so somebody's got to kind of regulate that you know it might be really interesting that Muammar Gaddafi uh, likes to sleep naked under a palm tree in the desert but like (laughs) do we really need to know that as the U.S. government we could probably put that in separate separate cable traffic and we don't need to blast it out to the whole U.S. government. Uh,
3: Dave, let's uh, take some questions from the viewers before we roll sure. on to the next thing.
5: Absolutely. Um, so, uh, JK, thank you for the donation. David, ever in your regular units? I never commanded any units. Uh, Jeff, uh, did you ever take command of a SEAL team?
4: No, I only did one deployment in the SEALs and then went over to the... Uh, CA. So, yeah, so I was a second in command of a SEAL team.
5: Okay. Uh, uh, thank you, Andrew. Uh, any Buds instructors reciting D.H. Lawrence? <laughs> no, not that I heard, but I mean, maybe they were, and I didn't know that's what they were reciting, but they recited
4: plenty of hell for me. They didn't, didn't need to be. A, it was,
5: yeah. Yeah. Um, Irene B., thank you uh, very much. Uh, how did you get your nickname first off what is your nickname and how did you get it what nickname are we talking about i think that i'm not,
3: I'm not sure. talking about your frumentarius name
5: Oh, my, my
4: twitter name uh that is a uh in the roman empire it was a um wheat they used wheat collectors because wheat collectors would move all throughout the roman empire and uh while collecting wheat would also collect intel and they would send that intel back to the authorities and those wheat collectors were called frumentarii the singular is a frumentarius. So I adopted that as my name because that's an, I was an intel collector, so there you go. And uh, in the, int- tradition of, in the tradition what? of US uh, early American political thinkers that always adopted these Latin names when they wrote, that was kind of my thinking too.
3: It's, uh, I, I'm gonna, I'm probably gonna mess up the history a little bit, but if you look, at, look it up, you can uh, fact check what I'm saying that in later on in Italian history, there were the charcoal burners and they provided a similar function as far as it was a secret society um, because they could go into different towns um, selling charcoal or creating it. And uh, as I recall, they had a big role in the Republican movement in Italy and creating a, the modern Italian state uh, later on in
4: Italian history. There you go, see, I didn't know that.
3: They're called, like, they called like Carbonari or something like that.
4: Carbonari is like the Italian FBI. That's the
3: police today, yeah.
4: yeah.
5: Mm-hmm. Sorry, uh, Alex, thank you very much uh, for the uninitiated. What is a plank owner slash holder? Uh,
4: that is a, someone that is a, a founding member of a unit. So if they create, if they tomorrow created, um, I don't know, the super ranger battalion X and it was filled with super rangers, like the greatest rangers ever to live, the original guys that were picked in that u- for that unit to stand up that unit would be the plank owners. That's a Navy thing. I
5: mean, you own the original planking of the ship. Okay, great. And then uh, Alex asked me a personal question for which I, Alex, I will answer you uh, it, uh, it, probably in the Patreon or, or uh, offline. Um, General Krang, uh thank you. He donated twice. And then uh, Amy Sanchez, thank you very much. She just has a fox emoji laughing. So <laughs> I assume. Um, uh, Andrew, thank you very much. Is there a correlation between officers who can recruit sources and people who excel at picking up one-night stands? Skill sets seem kind, uh, seem similar, kinda. Uh, <laughs> that's a
4: fascinating question. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's uh, probably not because it, well, I mean, let's delve into it. Uh, by definition, a one-night stand is relying on probably your physical looks you're some sort of immediate connection you're making and the unspoken um, understanding that this is probably a one night stand and nothing's going to come out of it. So that's the almost exact opposite of what you're looking for in a, a asset relationship for intelligence purposes. You want the long-term marriage version where they're telling you all their secrets. You're meeting every week. You're kind of getting to know their deep, dark, personal stuff. So I mean, I get it. I see the simile that's trying to happen there, but it's almost the opposite. Now, in a way, you could make a metaphorical leap and call the one night stand aspect kind of the Afghanistan model of intel collection. Some of that was very um, brief in a lot of ways. It would be like a guy showing up. Hey, I want to give you this info. I need some money. There's some terrorists in this village and you're like, here you go. Here's your money. I'll never see you again. Thanks a lot. And then he would leave and your relationship was done. So that does exist in that respect. Yeah.
5: Well, and it's like you said, like uh, to, to take it a little bit further, when you were drinking with the Russian, the thought is, we're just having a good time. I'm being earnest. Uh, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not being coy or false or whatever. We're just having a good time. And maybe in three months or five months or whatever, he'll call me. But when you talk to somebody at a bar, you, that's not your goal is to have hopefully that they'll call you in three months when they're when they're ready right? yeah,
4: you hope they don't call you in three months that's more
5: than right um, <laughs> right or nine months uh ian thank you very much um how closely did the cia work with five eyes allies uh
4: very close the so the five eyes relationship is um I, I don't know for sure how it started, but I think it started in SIGINT World, I believe that's where it really got started, which obviously is, is not us, that was the NSA. Uh, but it, it definitely trickles down. So there's a, um, there is a very close, healthy, intimate relationship in, amongst the Five Eyes countries. And,
5: and when we're talking about Five Eyes, we're talking about a, a group of countries that were closely related to. Uh,
4: yeah, America, can, or the US, uh, Canada, great britain australia and new zealand i believe is the five did i say canada yeah yeah i believe that's the five so we uh yeah without getting into deep dark secrets we have extremely close relationships with them for on purpose because we all have um extremely (laughs) similar and uh, uh copacetic national interest
3: it's like uh it's like open kimono to some extent isn't it jeff that like there there are no classifications here
4: uh you would think that's what it'd be there we everybody still there's always their secrets yeah you have always got grandma's chest in the closet that you're like you know what i'm not gonna show my wife this uh crazy (laughs) thing i've got in my chest in the closet there's still some secrets held between amongst and between them but for the most part yeah it's open kimono is a good description of it and, and it, it waxes and wanes um, depending on political leadership. I would imagine now it is it is waning a little bit. Um, for example, so if a if a president, hmm, any president, sort of is mouthy and not good at keeping uh, things we know under wraps, then that makes the other, uh, let alone not even including the Five Eyes countries, but even the Five Eyes countries kind of tighten up a little bit. So they might right. Uh... We're not even going to release this to, uh, to the Five Eyes. That, that happens in every country. You, you don't ever give all your secrets away, even to your
5: closest allies. Uh, and uh, General Krang, Guinness, uh said, uh, did you ever or did you have any interaction with British forces? And if so, how were they uh, how well were they integrated? Uh, British forces oh, in the SEALs, you mean? maybe speak to both i guess
4: i didn't do a lot uh with the british seals or uh i just didn't have a lot of experience with them in the military and i had a little bit of experience in the intel world and they're extremely professional just like you would think they would be they're they're much smaller um but do a lot with with their uh, size and their resources that are smaller than ours uh, which was which is fairly obvious since we're a huge country and, and they're not they work with, really well with what they have and are very good yeah. at what
5: they do did you I, I don't know if you're speaking about them militarily or intelligence wise no, but did you find, did, did you i don't know did you find that they because of like northern ireland and stuff that they came with a with, with an ex Experience level that maybe Americans didn't have. Yeah, um, intel-wise for sure.
4: And then, and there was also at least in the early days after 9/11, there was a little bit before um, the London bombings and the Paris bombings and, and all that. The rest of it, there was a little bit of dragging along, not a lot, but a little bit of dragging along. America had to do um, because it was a, it was our fight at first. Um, right. It had to spread to Europe yet. So, you know, even though your best allies are wary of uh, committing resources and lives and money to.
2: Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit Child and Family Resource Network.org today. Certain fights. So there was a little bit of that at
4: first, but then. But once they did become wholeheartedly involved, yeah, they have that. Ex- they definitely had that experience of Northern Ireland drawn. Um, I, I am a big. Without every ally's got their, uh, um, their hangups or their sort of their issues with us, and we with them, um, and and the Brits do as well. But despite those, they're they're great in what they do. They're, you have to admire uh, militarily and in the intel world. In my opinion
3: and, and i mean the brits also have hundreds of years of experience of colonialism and pacifying <laughs> foreign populations let's uh let's not forget about all that
4: <laughs> which can be helpful at times if you're looking for that kind of thing well that that all uh, like parlor
3: room british gentleman kind of facade i mean yeah it exists but they're very good at the kind of like uh, uh, chicanery and uh, subterfuge i mean it's something they do well
4: yeah they they definitely do. And it, it might be because they're so small, that's such a small island. They have to do they had to do so much for so long. They were essentially ruled the world, you know, for the longest time with that tiny little population. So you gotta learn something if you're doing that.
5: Um Brenda Marsh, thank you very much. Um this kind of skipping forward in your career to your current career. Um <laughs> but would you rather truck work versus engine work? <laughs> I think that's skipping ahead, right? Or am I wrong? Yeah.
4: No, that is giving in. I I, uh, I am on an engine now, so I love engine work, um, I, but I love truck work too. It's like any other thing, man. You When you're doing it and it's your job, you think it's the greatest job, and when you're on the opposite, you think – like when you're a ranger, you probably think that's the most important job in the world, and when you're a SEAL, you think that's the most important job in the world, Same thing with firefighting. Now, the rescue is a whole separate deal. I mean, that really is the – you know. am no, just kidding. Firefighters will get that joke, but I was on the rescue before I became an engine lieutenant. But I like engine work. Engine work is putting out fires, If you, for you guys that don't know. So engine engines have all the hoses and all the water. Trucks do a lot of uh, getting on the roof, cutting holes in the roof, breaking doors. Um, a lot of the kind of uh, non-fire suppression work and then rescues do a lot of fancy rescuing and technical rescuing and stuff. So
5: they're all different jobs, they're all important. So, so the engine would be sort of the water aspect. The the, the truck would be sort of the breaching or the the, the entering
4: and just any big kind of manual job, um, maybe like pulling victims out, cutting a hole in the roof, breaking doors, setting ladders up to get to second floor windows. It's more truck work, quote unquote. And then a rescue be rescue work is like technical, like a PJ
5: technical rescue, ropes. Things like that um we'll, we'll take a couple more and then then we'll kind of get back uh because because they're coming in um man i am so sorry um <laughs> oh. I, I believe somebody i believe this is russian but i'm not 100 certain uh but thank you very much you want to know that- the
4: name of the guy i had drinks with <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
5: Andrew, I don't know. Uh, what fluent this might be Andrew. Anyway, what fluency uh, fluency level did they uh, have you get to on the CEFR scale? And was your assigned language Russian? Uh, does yeah, the agency I, deal with? Okay, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Does the agency what? No, I, actually, we'll address because the second the second part of that question is uh, different. I, I did not work against the Russian target and was was never in uh,
4: Russia. I, I would spend my whole time in CTC. That that story was meant to illustrate the time I bumped up against uh, Russian. I did speak a zero Russian. For all the Russians out there listening, that might want to come send me emails and whatnot, I, I'm a waste of your time. Uh, <laughs> they have uh, so proficiency wise, you we scaled it um, like a one through five, where a five was fluent, native speaker, and a one was like I know how to say hola. So uh, I don't I don't know if that's called a CEFR or not, but I, I don't i was a zero on russian
5: I, I i don't know it, you can answer this to whatever detail you can or not answer it at all but why would the russians and us have overlapping targets in a, a counter-terrorist environment or counter yeah, the
4: the al-qaeda and um a lot of the central asian groups hate russia just as much as they hate us look at what they've done in Russia. They have done all kinds of stuff there, Uh, the Chechens and uh, Al-Qaeda. and So we overlap just because they hate Russians as much as Americans. I mean, Russia invaded Afghanistan, you know, that's who the original baby Al-Qaeda fought against when they became Al-Qaeda, so, but I wish I could say that that led to a ton of cooperation and sort of bridge building between us and the Russians, but I don't really think it did. But we
5: do have similar targets sometimes. Um, and then the second part of it, does the agency deal with fighting drug traffic? Uh,
4: there, is a, uh, there is a counter-narcotics center at the CIM. That is about all I can say about it because it was never my mission. I don't, I think it's a ridiculous waste of money if you want to know my personal opinion, but we, I believe they still do it as far as I know.
5: Um, DJ Segway, Oregon, thank you very much. Uh, are knocks a real position? <laughs> there, there is such a thing as a knock. yes. They do exist. And in
4: all, in all intel agencies across the world.
5: Or I mean, most and, of them. What does knock stand for?
4: It just stands for non-official cover. Uh, it's a real, it is a, it is a real uh, capability and status of cover that most intel agencies in the world use. Meaning you are covered as a commercial, non-official in a non-official capacity. So say, I, say I'm a Russian uh, businessman and the Russians want to send me over to America to collect into intel. They may be like, okay, here's your, you now work for Rosneft. Here's your papers. You've worked there for 20 years and they will send him over to America to live and work in our oil industry while collecting on our oil industry or whatever else they want him to collect on. Um, but he's, his status is a, is a Rosneft employee, not a state or not a Russian ministry of, Foreign affairs employee. That's what not means, basically. And
5: uh, yeah. these countries use it. Um, and then um, and then Amy, uh, thank you very much again. Uh she said, I love the show, didn't mean to send the fox earlier. I thought it was a cat, uh, but it was a ginger, so whatever. <laughs> I think I know what it
4: is. Oh. was talking about. She was harassing me earlier on the Twitter, making fun of my red skin and pale no tan
5: and the glow up i love the glow up (laughs) i feel your pain right in fact but i think you have more color than i do actually i mean it's it's like
4: this room i mean i'm apparently in the hottest room in my house right now
3: (laughs) all right so jeff i want to talk about uh afghanistan when when you went over to afghanistan uh were you going as a as a case officer or as a paramilitary officer at that point
4: uh case officer Okay. I deployed there as a OO operations officer or case officer um, to a, a to a area where we also had uh, paramilitary officers as well.
3: Okay. And, and I mean, were you supporting their mission or was it just mutually supporting?
4: And, yeah, there's different, the, they have different missions and uh, I, I would say we supported each other. Uh, all, the ultimate mission of all of us was to root out Al-Qaeda from the country and uh, defeat those forces that were supporting them so they were doing that on the military side and we were doing that on the intel collection side Um, and so we some days we supported them and some days they did more supporting us and went back and forth so um
3: to the extent that you're able then can can you walk us through kind of the lay of the land i mean uh, afghanistan i think people understand more or less geographically where, where it's located and what the terrain is like but i mean sort of the human topography of Afghanistan that you were having to interact with and, and root out you know, some bad actors out of the country?
4: Yeah, the human topography was um, all, essentially almost all Pashtun where I was. Uh, Afghanistan's got different ethnicities and uh, groups of tribal uh, affiliations throughout the country. The area where I was in the East is all, almost completely all Pashtun. Um, and the Pashtun is, the, is mainly what the Taliban were or are um, and they, they, sit, they go across both the border. Uh, they're in Afghanistan and Pakistan. They kind of span the border and different clans will have Pakistan residents and Afghanistan residents. And uh, you just have to, you're essentially in the world of Pashto when you're in that part of Afghanistan. You had to kind of work in that world. Um, and so in that Pashtun culture, which is the native culture there, you also had Arabs that had kind of infiltrated in really since the days of the Russian invasions in the 80s. Um, that had set up camp there, and then much more came over before and right after 9 11. And that the Arab Al Qaeda element there was the kind of um, was really who we were after. The Pashtun, the local Pashtun insurgency, and the Taliban insurgency wasn't necessarily a big concern for us in CTC because it wasn't the Taliban didn't attack us on 9 11, we didn't really give a crap other than that, other than that they were supporting Al Qaeda, so we would go. We would we would look at them for that reason, but really we were after the Arab Al-Qaeda leadership that was hiding out in the Pashtun world and may, and on both sides of the border. They were both Afghanistan and Pakistan at the time. I don't know what they are now, but so you had to kind of you had to know kind of what you were looking at in that human topography, know who was important. So if you ever heard an Arab name or someone described as an Arab, you would immediately kind of perk up and be like, okay, and not for ethnic reasons, but because that equaled probably an Al-Qaeda leader. They didn't let Pashtuns be leaders in Al-Qaeda for the most part. Um, I don't know what it's like now, but then it was really all Arabs. Uh, Egyptians, uh, Saudis uh, were the big two. And then- uh, Yemenis. So
3: if you if you hear somebody whose name
4: is like Al-Misri or Al-Siri, you're like, whoa,
3: what the fuck is that?
4: That immediately, you would be immediately be like, I want to talk to you, let's do this. Like if somebody was like, I saw this guy Al-Misri in the uh, village the other day with a big caravan of like five trucks you're like that's exactly what I want to know about and you would just kind of you know you would laser focus in on that um and then you would kind of run with it from there and try to figure out who it was and what they were doing there and if it was somebody we cared about and generally was and so that was really what you were dealing with it was a lot of like it was like sifting through a you know the river silt to
5: find the gold chunks really was it uh go ahead Dave uh, I was just going to say, how difficult was it to work uh, in, in sort of that, that Pashtun area? Because you say that they spanned Afghanistan and Pakistan, and for our viewers who don't know, like the the, the Pashtuns don't don't recognize the border. They <laughs> they have a tribal area, or they, they have a, a cultural area that's existed long before that border, um, and and they they kind of divide by tribes and families and things like that, and. They don't always get along. So how how hard was that for you to sit, like you say, sifting through it? Was there a lot of deception, like trying to blame their rival tribes? Did you do yeah, a lot of that?
4: The, yeah, and man, Bastion culture is like, um, is it's probably as close to it's the best way you can almost describe it for American um, years is like Hatfields and McCoys. It's a very right. real tribal sort of family versus family tribe versus tribe village versus village society Uh, it always has been for thousands of years and um, that worked to our advantage a lot of times in some ways but then like you're saying in other ways it doesn't because you really never knew is he reporting on this guy because it's a blood feud that goes back like 40 years and he just wants us to go blow his house up because he's his cousin you know married his sister and they didn't approve or is this really something that's important so you really you did have to sift through a lot of that and you you the, the institutional knowledge of us having been there for so long, but at the time that I got there in about 2006, um, it was it was pretty easy to do that and not super hard to figure that out. And we we knew we we knew more um, we knew more about what we were looking for than they knew we were looking for. If that makes sense. So things that they would say that may not seem important to them, we kind of latch on to, and like you said, and I'm, like missing a name out mystery. They, they, or haji or ibrahim like these little keywords that we would pick up on and that we had heard in traffic or, or whatever else so you know you almost then them would ignore the first 30 minutes of a meeting where they talked about how they were gonna go murder their cousin because they had a blood feud over a truck and you'd be like you had to listen to it because again rapport building and empathy but then you'd be like yeah that's good let's talk more about that but first let's hear about this ibrahim guy and then and then you'd kind of like prod them and they'd almost be like I mean I don't know he's an Arab and he's in the village and he's in a truck I don't know why do you want to know about him like it was kind of a you had to kind of direct them where you wanted them to go while sifting through it was hard and then and then the opposite was some of them were very very good at knowing what we wanted to hear uh, like any culture in America would be the same way I and mean, there's all police I'm sure deal with it on a daily basis informants that know exactly what you want to hear and always have a steady stream of it to feed you as long mm. as you got some money to give them or some you know, something in return, so we face everybody faces that, um, all the time. And you kind of sift it through, and I'm sure we wasted thousands of dollars on some worthless information, but that's kind of the price of doing business sometimes, you know.
3: What was it like the, the difference going from you know, you're working in a European country, uh, going to diplomatic parties and cafes, and now you know you're wearing? it was from some of the pictures you were able to share with us you're wearing fatigues carrying a kalashnikov uh you know all kitted out um it, it must be like just a totally different operational environment for uh, a cia case officer in the way you're going about doing business
4: yeah o- honestly for me it was the opposite because i went from uh, seals into the cia and then really my first tour was in afghanistan okay well i was still kind of it was almost like this slow transition the real shock was going to europe and then wearing a suit every day and uh having to live like in an embassy and that was honestly was was very difficult and uh i don't know i'm not even 100% sure there wasn't some like weird kind of strange uh, pseudo ptsd that came into play cuz i just couldn't a lot of that stuff in Europe i couldn't see as important i would get real like anxious like why are we right right why do we give a shit with this second uh minister of uh, you know, state from Uzbekistan is doing, I just don't care. Like, this is not important. Why are we going after this? So you, you almost had to kind of like readjust your whole mental framework, which I had a little bit of trouble with. And I had a boss that made that difficult too. But so that was almost harder than the opposite. Like, you know how it is in a war zone. It's, it's easy to yeah. live in a war zone. For the most part, you, you don't have a lot of responsibility other than staying alive and doing your missions. You don't got you don't have to go to the store. You don't have to pay bills. You don't have to worry about stupid, on important stuff you really just tend to focus on important stuff so that it was very you, pure in a way it was almost harder going the opposite way and trying to fit back into normal society in europe
5: yeah and you said that for most of your your uh, fellow employees that afghanistan and iraq were the anomalies right yeah. that they that they did they were kind of throw off type things so how did you relate to when you went to europe how did you relate to like your fellow employees and your bosses and and people like that
4: uh it was it was difficult i I didn't get along great with my boss because she was very much in that old school um we're in europe this is the important ca we're here in europe like this is where things that, that are important happen so she was very much focused on classical targets if you want to call them that chinese and russian and those are can't argue those are hugely important, but I was still in CT right. Al Qaeda mode. So we kind of butted heads and I'll be like, this is not as important as you're saying it is, we should be going and doing this thing. And we, we, we butted heads. My coworkers, uh, most of which were young, had, had also rotated in and out of Afghanistan and Iraq. So it was much easier with them because they were kind of in the same boat. Or if they weren't, they they got it better. You know, they were, they were post, most of them were post 9-11 employees um, and understood that dynamic or they were former military and got it. So it was really mainly an issue with just certain bosses that just didn't have that focus and didn't think CT was very important. Um, And I still did quite a bit at that point and and still do obviously, but you know, again, if I had been a more mature 40 instead of 26, wherever I was, I probably would have handled that better. And we never, it was never an issue, but it took me a while to kind of get through that.
5: Did when you were in Afghanistan, uh, did your past as a SEAL, did that give you some sort of cash with, with the other agency employees, or I mean, did they look at you in a certain way that they didn't c- kind of consider others?
4: Um, o- only if when we were dealing with Naval Special Warfare units, uh, so it did in that respect. If we bumped up against them for whatever reason, um, but my other the fellow. Uh, case officers were out there and they was like one was an army guy one was a former marine so they didn't they didn't really care and it didn't uh no other than like no nothing more than stories and sort of like oh they they didn't have to like some people will show up out there and it really would be their very first tour with anywhere so for first deployment anywhere for the u.s government is to a cia base in afghanistan that's a little shocking um for like a 27 year old that's never been outside the country for that to be your first assignment so you you kind of walk them through it like hey you are living in this mud hut um we're gonna work till probably like 11 every night there might be mortars and rockets that every once in a while it's fine just go to the bunker like things that a former military person kind of like yeah i got it roger like i've been there like i understand some people that have never lived that life are like what the hell are you talking about there's gonna be rockets coming on the base so that kind of stuff they never had to finesse when you were a former seal or a former marine or a former ranger they knew you got that um so that's really the only kind of cache it gave you was just that you had been there before and
5: done something how about like weapon safety did you yeah and,
4: and weapon safety is always a. I there's plenty of times in a cia ranger i got real nervous but there was times in navy ranges i got nervous too so we i mean we had an eod guy almost shoot us in the range one time and i was in the navy it doesn't just happen in civilian world, as we all know.
3: So when I was in Afghanistan, I'm not going to, I don't want to put you on the spot. I was in a certain <laughs> area, and the, the task force had a relationship with the CIA in that area. Um, are you able to talk at all about that relationship? Because every so often, those guys would say, hey, we got this target for you.
4: <laughs> no, I don't I don't know what relationship you're talking about, <laughs> <laughs> No, some things I cannot talk about, and some of those things are untalkable. in that respect. I believe, so you're familiar with Title 10 and Title 50 and all that stuff. Sure. Some of that stuff legally is uh, prohibited under law, or or at least regulated under law, which is very confusing. It makes no sense to say, but that explains why I can't say much about it.
3: Right, so... For people who are listening, Title 50 is the CIA's covert action authorities. Title 10 is the military's authorities for combat, for direct action to go out and fight the enemy. So there's certain things a guy like Jeff could go do, and it's certain things that a guy like me could go do, but
4: the the streams aren't supposed to cross, are they? (laughs) But sometimes you almost think to yourself, it might work really well if we could work together and use both of these uh, uh, legal authorities in cahoots. some might think that some Some might might. think that that
3: sounds like some crazy talk but hey
5: nothing I would (laughs) jump Yeah, I mean for people who don't know who are listening or or watching like even though you may not think it like our intelligence is highly regulated our special operations and military are highly regulated and what they're allowed to do by our own law um, it, it, it fall into very separate baskets.
4: Yeah, and th- th- this that's a good thing. That's a, it's honestly a good thing that we do regulate it that way because it keeps us from getting out of control. Yeah, and th- I- this
3: might be a good time to address actually, Jeff, with uh, with you because there are so many people out there who believe that there are these like CIA conspiracies, and they think that you guys are ju- like you can just do whatever you want, like you're just lawless, a law right. unto yourself. And, you know, if you want to kill somebody, you kill somebody. Um, And, you know, it's not true for the military. And I mean, I maybe there is a time in my life where I probably believe that about the intelligence services as well. But now that I know a bunch of you guys and I've been, you know, working as a journalist for many years and have seen a a bit more of it, I know that 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 just is not the case. Like, it's not even close to the truth.
4: No, it is one of the most tightly regulated. I would positive it is one of the most tightly regulated agencies in america in terms of what it cannot it can and cannot do and for good reason i mean there's been historically uh, debacles left and right with the CAA, but it is man there is nothing we ever did that was did, uh, there were times when i wanted to do more um and nothing illegal like within our legal authorities and would run it up the flagpole and get just immediately shot down like absolutely not not doing this and you would just be like oh my god why are we the cia if we can't go do things like this and again that's a 30 year old or whatever talking that wants to just be gung-ho but um i mean it is so there's u.s u.s law is extremely strict about the cia and we follow it to the t now some foreign law we routinely break and we break on purpose because we're directed by the u.s government to break that foreign law that's our job. It's illegal for a foreigner to provide info to the CIA. We obviously break that law all the time. So, you know, it's a different, it's different when you're talking about U.S. law and a foreign law. A foreign law we really don't care much about, but U.S. law we absolutely care about because of our history of, um, and I say our being the CIA's history of coming up against U.S. law quite a bit and being smacked down for it, and rightly so. Sure
5: the law and a lot of those laws are in place because of previous abuses and, reason, and whatnot yeah um, and I,
4: I mean I never came I was never I can honestly say I was never once presented with a, a opportunity to just drastically violate US law to the extent where it was like We can do this and save America, but we're
1: gonna have to break U.S. law. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at thirty thousand feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba. Live. No purchase necessary. BGW We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
4: Or we can follow us law and not save America. Like that just that never happened. It was never even a. Yeah,
3: just, the Jack Bauer on 24, like really the happened. nuclear bomb's about to go off in LA. Do you torture the guy to get the info?
4: <laughs> that's very. That's a very Hollywood uh, fabricated scenario. No.
5: Yeah. It well, it, and it's. I think it's important for people to know that if oh, there are, if there are abuses in the CIA, if there are abuses in the special operations community or in the military, just like their abuse in the police force, it's not that it's not that those agencies allow those abuses. It's just there are assholes in every single community across the span of of humanity.
4: Right. It's all it's it's human beings that are the CIA and human beings do dumb shit sometimes. And, and most of it is like any other most of it's petty theft and
1: Yeah. yeah,
4: And I mean, that's the majority of the uh, abuses that happened. Now, obviously, there have been cases where there's been these great legal um, uh, struggles and and conflicts and moral conflicts over how far we go in terms of interrogation techniques and things like that. But none, I assure you, 100% certainty, none of that was done without the approval of political leaders above, because the CIA are not idiots, and they know they get thrown to the jackals every time something goes wrong so they they tend to cover their asses pretty good at this point and and don't do things uh, on the whim anymore uh, at least when i was there everything is very there's a huge legal department at the cia and they for that reason because they don't want to break american law they don't want to do things that are against um, our government and our law
3: i'll uh, i'll just be like dead honest uh, in my my personal opinion just based on my observations over the years that i think JSOC is the element that plays pretty fast and loose with the law, and the CIA is actually pretty tight about it and generally follows the letter of the law. I think it's actually the the military that's they they bend the rules quite a bit.
4: Yeah, I I don't know that I never worked there, so I've seen what you've written about that. So uh, (laughs) I'll take your word for it.
3: But yeah, when 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 people uh, say you know the CIA is like oh they've gone rogue that they're that they're funding these groups in Syria or whatever the case may be, they're not going rogue. They're getting paper from the White House to do that. Now whether or not we should be doing that is a valid question. But they're not going rogue.
4: Oh, absolute. There's always valid policy questions, but you don't just uh, magically procure. Th- Thirty million dollars as the CIA and give it to Syrian opposition groups that is a political <laughs> decision that comes down the pipe and is papered over extensively for that reason you know that's a covert action program that is approved all the way up at the White House um I assume I mean I wasn't involved in that program but that's generally how it works that money comes from Congress that money doesn't magically appear in the CIA uh, budget you know but it's fine. I, I get that someone's got to have a boogeyman. And it is fine to let the CIA be the boogeyman. And it's almost good in a way because it gives a little bit of like uh, power of mystique, you know? Like, oh, they can do anything they want. Like, that's almost yeah. good that your enemies think that.
3: Right, right. It's like the reputation Mossad has. That people think Mossad <laughs> is everywhere. And it's like this little small agency with a small, in a small country but people think they're everywhere.
4: <laughs> right. I, uh, I don't even know much about them. But I'm sure they're less than a thousand or whatever more
3: i It's. Uh. But you think it's a good thing that the CIA is so ira- has this irrational fear, uh, that, that people have an irrational fear of it. Like I, I've been in Iraq and been in Kurdistan, or, and I've just heard the most bizarre theories that like you know it rained out today, CIA made it made that happen. You know I, I've been sitting with people, smart people, like ISIS. ISIS is the CIA. <laughs> they they airdrop chai to the to isis to keep them supplied and keep their morale up so they come in and they parachute chai down from them from the sky it's like just crazy irrational bullshit
4: yeah I, I think it's good that uh our foreign enemies have that opinion i don't think americans should think that but it happens uh i i always tell people especially like 9-11 conspiracy theorists I will tell them, man, I worked for the federal government. There is no way we could have pulled off 9-11 if we had a wanted to and had a, an entire plan to do it, like, to try to cover that up and make it look like it was foreign terrorists. You could have tasked that with us 10 years prior, and we still wouldn't have pulled that off. So it's just stupid, I mean, to think, well, you know. And the way the Mossad did 9-11. The, the, the,
5: the second part of that whole conspiracy theory with 9-11, I don't like really go off on a huge tangent, is – how uh, like how do you approach something like that so bush goes directly to a, a group of cia people or a special force team he goes hey i want to kill like ten thousand americans right are you guys in frame there are, are you guys in what happens when they say uh <laughs> no okay all right we have to kill all you guys 100 percent commitment
4: right now up front
5: yeah <laughs> yeah No, no,
3: no, Dave, Dave, you just don't get it, man. They made them sign NDAs. Right. They made those guys sign NDAs, so they'll never talk. Nobody ever breaks an NDA. Look, I'm a fucking journalist, and I'm here to tell you, no (laughs) one ever breaks NDAs. That never happens.
4: I I have pulled off small-scale conspiracies on foreign soil against our enemies, and those little small-scale, like, 10-man conspiracies were extremely (laughs) difficult to carry off. I will just tell you, things go wrong. Things people don't do what they're supposed to do. People talk. People do stupid stuff. Like to carry out one that entailed an entire country and a mass terrorist attack. No, come on, man.
3: So Jeff, before before we uh, talk about your your moving on from the agency and becoming a first responder, and do you have any like uh, was there any crazy stuff in Afghanistan you can tell us about? Where you know getting into firefights? Did you guys ever get ambushed? Like some you know get, call of duty shit that never happened over there? Come on.
4: I never had any major. Uh, Brushes with death. I mean, we had mortars and rockets that would land, and we there was some anti-tank mines that our uh, locals would drive over and blow up every once in a while. But we we were pretty lucky my year there. It was we we uh, we were careful, man. I I felt safer driving around my part of Afghanistan in a thin-skinned local-looking car with my haji gear on and l- looking with my burka on than I ever did in a Humvee. You know, just because you're just a, you're not a target when you're when you look like you belong
5: yeah that that I always felt that was a security blanket for me and, and people don't realize like uh you know e- e- your beard was red you're a ginger but yeah. but Projection. you actually you actually fit in there because because there there are fair skin red-haired people there
4: although i will tell you one of my terms was like mr jeff you cannot Go out with that beard and that skin. <laughs> he was pretty convinced I was gonna be figured out. So he was like, You must wear a burqa. So I always sat in the back oh, of the car. Brilliant. I put the burqa, I mean I just laid it over my head, you know, because I was so white, I think I was like an aircraft panel in the back of the car. And they're worried like <laughs> someone was gonna be like, That's I mean, we're dumb, but we're not we're not letting this Irish American guy drive through our, our village looking like this. So so he I, wasn't... Generally, I generally put in a burqa on just to be sure.
3: The, the, that, but I mean, the Afghans got to see a fully grown American man wearing a burqa. Like, that must have been a sight.
4: Well, they never noticed it was me. I was always sitting in the back of the car. So I was I was low profile.
5: Are, are you sure that your interpreter wasn't just fucking with you? To- he
4: could have clearly, <laughs> easily could have been. I'm pretty sure they all were at a certain point. Because we had like an Asian American dude right up front driving. I'm like, well, there's no freaking Chinese <laughs> dude in your house. And you're not making him wear a burqa. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure those guys had fun with us.
5: Hazing from the Afghanis. Yeah,
4: they were good guys, though. They, I was okay with that. Uh, we had a to...
5: q- couple quick questions. Uh, Alex, uh, thank you very much. Um, any advice for a GS nobody trying to get involved in the world of international high adventure? And he said, great show. Uh, you've helped me survive many long haul flights. <laughs> thank you.
4: Uh, a GS nobody that already works in the government, I presume, like a, someone that wants a lateral transfer.
5: I assume probably a GS six, GS seven, something like that. You yeah,
4: know, I, mean, I would do it. You never know until you try, man. That's what I, I was a basically a four year lieutenant when I switched over. It's not like any much better than a GS six in the, <laughs> in the federal government. So uh, and, and
5: when we talk about GS levels, uh, there are levels of government pay grade, sort of like a military grade, but yeah,
4: like structure. I left the I started the CIA as a GS nine. And left as a 13, so it, it go the uh, 13 is like a uh, 04 equivalent or something, or 0304. So, but, I mean, I I always I tell my kids this, and I tell everybody this, like just do what you want to do. I I have never had a real job. That's why I always tell people, like I've had three careers, none of which were real jobs. I've been paid to do crap that I would have done for free, literally, because it's been awesome and I enjoy doing it. And uh, just do the stuff you like to do. That's what I say. And if you want people that always ask how to What um, they should do to get to the CIA. I always tell them own language. Um, You have to get a degree, basically, to be an ops officer on the CEO side. Um, Economics, uh, history, politics, international affairs. I mean, there's certain things you do have to do to get there, but just go do it. It's a great job.
2: At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park, or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum. Restrictions may apply. Subject to availability.
1: You can save an extra $10 when you spend 40 or more on a great selection of participating items. Just look for the signs and save at Baker's.
5: Uh, I'm Brad Orr. Uh, and there are other things you can look at. I mean, you can look at the NSA. You can look at... Uh, uh, defense, you meant, um, like, there, there, are, there are quite a few uh, positions out there. Um, Brad Oreck, thank you very much. Was there information we gained through enhanced interrogation techniques that we wouldn't have gained without it, as opposed to building rapport? Yeah, that's the age-old question.
4: Uh, I can only say that the, the the reporting that came out of that program, that um, and I was intimately involved in the, reportings that came out of that program uh was was great and helped us and gave us tons of leads and led to tons of follow-on captures none of it was jack bauer stuff that prevented you know immediate attacks Uh, but it was it was important stuff in my opinion important stuff and that that's a that's a uh the more removed you you are from 9-11 the the less appealing that program seems and rightly so we're in america we don't want to torture people but at the time i was hundred percent in support of it only because I knew firsthand the regulations on it and saw the, um, strictures put around it. Um, and I, and I was okay with it and, uh, and saw the stuff that came out of it. And to this day, the information that came out of it, I still think was valuable. Um, my moral brain doesn't necessarily want to think it's okay to do that. And I, and I think it's okay that it, I think it's good that it was a, a extraordinary circumstance and that we haven't done it since, and that it was treated the way it was treated after the fact. I'm okay with the, with the Congress stepping in being like, even the people that are hypocritical and supported it and then didn't support it. I'm okay with that because I think they're trying to keep in, in the um, confines of American morality. So that generally is okay by me. And I think a good thing, but if we had to do all over again, I think that program was successful. I would do it again if it was me, but. Things important things did come out of it. Anyone that says nothing important came out of it has no idea what they're talking about. Literally nothing.
5: Yeah, Jack, do you have an opinion on that?
4: Um, I guess it's
3: you know, like Jeff said, it's a question of like, is the juice worth the squeeze? And uh, just me personally, I'm of the opinion that it's it's not. And you know, once we go down that road, it's like we're we're America the torturers now. That's what we're gonna do, and. Yeah, the, if it's to stop the nuclear bomb from going off in LA, then yeah, you know, you're, you're, you're a soldier in the war, you're going to do whatever you got to do. But that, like Jeff said, that's like a fictional scenario. That's not, that's not real life. And that's not how intelligence operations or special operations even work.
4: And, and I'm honestly glad that most, I think most people are against that program, I would imagine the majority. So I'm a, I'm a, that's a good thing to me. I don't, I think the second we all I think the minute we the majority of Americans are okay with that kind of thing is we're in trouble. So I, yeah. prefer, I prefer everyone have an opinion that, like Jack's, honestly. I mean, that makes me feel better as an American.
5: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I agree with Jeff. I always consider torture something as, I mean, if a person could walk out of the detention the next day as the same person, like no bruises, nothing removed, you know, if you weren't doing actual physical damage or, or whatever, uh, it becomes well, almost like a, a, an old school hazing. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I, can, I can add,
3: you know, a little bit further my like two cents. And I, I had absolutely no, I have no firsthand personal knowledge of enhanced interrogation texni- techniques that the CIA used. Um, you know, Jeff, you're the, you're the guy who can speak to that. I say, when I was part of the Special Operations Task Force, one of the duties that unfortunately fell upon me and some of my soldiers we were being guards inside, you know, what you could call the JSOC black site in Mosul, and they had contractors there who did use um, sleep deprivation, food deprivation, uh, put the guys in stress positions, would not let them sit down until they talked, would not let them sleep. Um, would not let them get out of a stress position until they talked. And you could also hear them in the interrogation rooms and they'd have this little five foot two girl go in there and slap the guys around. And you could hear them getting slapped around. Now, none of those guys, like you said, Dave, none of them left with like hands sawed off. None of them had their fingernails pulled off. None of that ever, none of that stuff ever happened there. Um, But there's still some pretty nasty stuff that like I don't feel good about and and because I was a ranger, I was a, I was a nug, I was not an intel guy. I can't, I can't tell you if actionable, important intelligence information came from those detainees. I, I don't know that information. I just say, based on what I saw and looking back on it now, and, and the way that the interpreters who wor- worked in that facility encouraged my privates to beat the detainees. And that's where the abuse really starts in. And I, and I told them, I said, absolutely, no, you're not to do that. And
5: if they try to tell were you they to do local, that. Were they indigenous interpreters?
3: Um, they were Middle Eastern, but I'm pretty sure they were American citizens because they're working in a JSOC detention facility doing interrogations with intelligence personnel. So they had to have a top secret clearance.
5: And, and see, I agree with you. I mean, I agree with both of you. I, I think that it, it's good you didn't feel good about I don't think anybody should ever feel good about that. If you feel good about it, you're a sadist. You know what I mean? Like you
3: yeah i i you know i have mixed feelings about it and uh on many levels um because yeah it, it, it's i what i went through in seer school was worse than what those guys went through in that facility right. but i was there voluntarily i was i was a special forces recruit i wasn't a detainee in a, in a war overseas so it, those are it's kind of like comparing apples and oranges but sure
5: interesting um uh, so uh, that's Brad and Andrew. Thank you very much. Uh, how would the SEAL community react if their mission set, if, if their mission set was going to be turned over to the Marine Corps? <laughs> what? I don't know. I don't know. What... I mean, how, how would they react if they didn't have a job anymore?
3: That's <laughs> what I've been. That's what I've been lobbying Congress for for years, Jeff. <laughs> Give it to the <laughs> Marines. It'd be
5: super uh,
4: sad. I I think MARSOC is an awesome command, and SEALs have no problem with Marsak. We we think all of our special operations brothers are valuable and in their own way.
5: <laughs> now, when you say so we answer, you.
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, man, I, I, Marslock's a great command. I, I don't know why they would turn over all our missions to them. Whatever, that's fine.
3: So, Jeff, tell us where you're at today. I mean, now you're, you're, you've continued a life of service from being a sailor to a spy to now a first responder um working on fire trucks working in a fire department um what has that whole transition been like uh to a different type of public service
4: that's been great i uh i started here at the fire department like eight years ago yeah almost exactly eight years just over eight years ago and uh i didn't know anything about i just needed a job i was gonna stay around here because i had my kids were here and i was getting divorced and just needed to be in this area and uh, I was like, what am I going to do? I can't, I've never had a real job. I can't go be like on a desk somewhere. Like, I'll just firefight and we'll figure it out from there. And uh didn't know the first thing about it. And uh, it's been fantastic. I, when I first started writing, in fact, for you at SoftRip, uh, the second article I ever wrote was about switching from uh, special operations to firefighting because it is a very similar. Um, World in the terms of camaraderie and the sense of mission, and everybody being fully dedicated to getting their job done and being a part of a team like that. It's really exactly the same. And, uh, but it's so it's that part of it, but then it's also you're serving in your own hometown. So, like, every, the people you're helping are like your neighbors. Like, so you're they all like everyone in my kids' school knows me is like that's so oh, that's uh, Luke's dad, the firefighter, you know, like you're just become a part of the kind of the community. At large, much more so than you ever are in the military. In the military, you get the like the nods and the polite hellos at the, in the airport when you're in your uniform, but like you're almost like kind of set apart. But when you work for a fire department or a police department or whatever, EMT in that town, you're you're a you're a uh, very deeply ingrained part of that town. Like you you see the worst of it, um, you see the best of it you're kind of expected to be there to help people and I love it I think it's been great and it's just and I mean the adrenaline and, and, and
3: every, everyone loves the fire department but you
4: don't have a lot of the problems that a,
3: <laughs> the police departments have
4: <laughs> we're way more lovable that's why we're just generally more handsome on the most part and then also <laughs> just way more nice you know <laughs> we don't have to beat people or handcuff them or arrest them in front of their families and I get it I, I joke we love our police I love the cops here we work super close with them, but it is a totally different job yeah, yeah. it's like, being like everybody loves the swimsuit model well yeah because she stands there in a bikini But nobody loves the freaking school principal that's smacking your your
5: knuckles because you're doing bad in school right and what did you was the fire department the only thing you applied for or were you looking at uh, different options when you were leaving the agency uh, that, that
4: was the only th- i went to grad school um first and then did a little like i did some um like selling things to the special operations community for a little while like a business rep and that was terrible um just while i was waiting to get hired at the fire department and uh, but i didn't apply to police i'm just not a i'm not an enforcer of law Uh, it's just not me yeah i was a breaker of laws for like seven years foreign laws but i mean like still laws like i just find it hard to be like it's just not my life my personality
5: yeah much rather run in and squirt water on a fire and then leave when i mean when you were applying to the fire department with your resume was there was there disbelief did you run into credibility issues <laughs> that's, that's kind funny. of shit. it's funny you should say that <laughs> because it is very
4: funny you should say that because i got i i didn't i just didn't think about it i was like oh, i'm gonna apply and like i got called by the the chief of the department uh towards the end of the process of trying to apply he's like hey uh you're you're number one on our list um we so offer you this job, are you going to take this job? It was almost like he was like, are you just a fucking with us here to apply for this? Like, what is going on here? I was like, no, I seriously want to be a firefighter. Like, I'm excited. He's like, you know, you're going to have to clean toilets and stuff, right? I was like, man, I was in the military. We clean toilets. Everybody cleans toilets. Like, I think they, uh, and I, some of it's the history of our department and guys that rebel against having to do menial tasks. And Part of the being a firefighter is, is cleaning toilets and cooking for each other. And Right, cleaning. right. I think they were thinking like, he's coming from these other careers will he be able to do these these menial right things? Like, you know, i was in the military i can do any of that stuff so i kind of had to sell them almost on like no i really want this job i don't know if they thought i was going to do it for a year and then quit or whatever but
5: or if you're going to come in with you know like an attitude like exactly oh, exactly you don't, know, exactly. who <laughs> don't you know, know who i am no, you know who i am you want to see my trident yeah
4: it's <laughs> so, no i and i but i've gotten just and when I first started, I got 100, like, all the time questions and stuff, which was completely understandable. But, like, it would get to the point where I think everybody was like, yeah, that's just Butler. I mean, he's, like, he's pale. he's got, He's bald. Like, I think he was a SEAL. He says he was, but I don't see it. He seems like a normal guy. So it almost, like, went the whole opposite way. Like, I was a huge disappointment to everyone. Like, <laughs> was as cool as we thought it would be. <laughs> uh, which I guess is good, you know.
5: They were expecting uh, Steven yeah, Seagal. Thought, like,
4: yeah, they thought The yeah. Rock was joining their fire department.
5: Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I know. I hear that, too, sometimes where people are like, you know, the, oh. their friend tells them, oh, yeah, Jack's coming to this uh, par- barbecue or whatever. He was an Army guy in Special Forces. And then I show up and they're like, bro, I thought you were going to look like John <laughs> Cena. They're yeah. like disappointed. It's just this like 180-pound dude. <laughs> right, because
4: they're used to the TV shows where it's like, you know some kind of superhuman thing like no man and i tell them like man a lot of that's just myth and i'm just like you but i'm much <laughs> more mentally tough i always end it with that like some kind of funny joke it's not true Uh but uh it's been awesome I, and i love it i'm so i'm on a pension track now so i'm here for the long haul so this will this will be where i finish out my working career but i've been working for 21 years now and still have to do like at least uh 15 more at the fire department so my body hangs in there
5: did did they give you all your federal time or no
4: no i i bought all my military time into the federal tsp program but federal government doesn't transfer to municipal government i could have transferred my military time to the fire department but i still have my tsp it's just not i can't contribute to it anymore you know it just throws on its own but i've got a good pension i mean yeah fire department takes care of you. the pension makes the low the comparatively low salary well worth it you know it's the pension's great
5: and the benefits i mean it's a great job i love it uh, that's awesome we have a couple okay. more questions uh, yes sorry uh, we have a couple more questions uh thank you uh 576 sierra or s uh just like special operations units creating their tactical companies do people in the intel world do the same as far as intel companies go
4: yeah most i think a lot of it is um uh corporate espionage uh that's really all i ever heard of um that i assume that's what they're talking about private intelligence gatherers there there are and there's um there's even some that do international affairs uh but it ends up being from what i've seen it ends up being more of a um business climate surveys and what's the political situation in this country and should i open a business there so it, it didn't it never really appealed to me as a um fun job a lot of like writing reports and PowerPoint presentations doing private intel.
5: when you were still in the agency I mean were you thinking about becoming a firefighter did you think that'd be a great job to have or a good job to have or was it just kind of when you were deciding to leave you're kind of looking around going what can I do now
4: Uh, it was no it was all of all of that was a second fiddle to marital problems that were going on so it was more of a I'm here in Missouri now what do i do now that's more how i came up i never i never thought about being a firefighter until like about probably two months before i applied
5: yeah what as somebody who personally has been through two divorces oh what (laughs) what like in in general both with the seal community and with the agency what what is the cost of all that uh relationships extremely
4: tough i I think it's a uh that was and that's another that was another contributing factor to why I moved from the military to the CIA and chose that CMO track uh, was because it, it promised more uh, DC time. So part of the selling point for me was like, you could do about 50% of your career overseas and 50% in DC um, as a CMO. And I wanted, I was trying to do that to because so, my wife at the time was a doctor and uh, needed to work. You can't just cart a doctor all over the world and expect them to make money. So, sure. uh, it was tough. I think that that's an extremely tough job on any f- family. Uh,
5: Did you see similar situations with other SEALs and with other agents? Oh, yeah.
4: Employees? The divorce rate is hugely high in the intel community and in the special operations community. And man, part of that might be the personality types that are attracted to it. And then part of it's obviously got to be the, the deployment tempo. I mean, even in pre-9-11, just regular old SEAL platoon workup, I was still gone like 40% of the time. And that was like back before any wars were going on. I have to imagine it's way worse now. Yeah. Yeah, Again, honestly, it was part of the reason firefighting sounded so appealing, because I was, I'm gone every third day, but I'm gone like a mile down the road at the fire station. So like, I'm not, I'm not leaving the country for months at a time. I'm always here, you know, which is nice.
5: Yeah, um, uh, Graham, thank you very much. What was the most difficult part or parts of the farm you can talk about? And was there a, a high attrition rate? I
4: think we
5: already kind of talked about that. Yeah, the we part, did, yeah. Uh,
4: the, the attrition rate part, there's not a high, the there's not a super high attrition rate at the farm because the attrition happens uh, before. So it is like, it's an absurd amount of people that apply every year to the CIA and then they hire very few so that's the interview process and the hiring process is really their attrition is most of their attrition um there's a little bit of it there uh but yeah otherwise I, I mean for me personally i talked about it's just the learning to be a good empathetic listener was the heart but it's different some things are different for everybody you know that's same with seal training some guys struggle through runs some guys struggle through swimming some guys struggle through o course uh, everybody's different
5: yeah is there when you were going into the agency um, when you said there's not a high attrition rate at the farm? Is there screening that good that they can sort of psychologically profile people that are cut out for the work?
4: Uh, it seemed to me in my case, um, yeah, it was pretty good. That's I mean, it's a it's a lot of interviews and a lot of uh, it's like um, you're taking those. Myers-Briggs, I mean, it's all that's psychological interviews. So they must know what they're looking for because um, almost everybody made it through. Um, a small handful did not. But I, now, granted, I don't know how everybody did after the farm to see if those were worthwhile hires, but I assume they were. I'm sure they all did as good as me or, or better.
5: Uh, and then we have one question from uh, our Patreon, uh, uh, so Patreon supporter. Um, watching the Butler episode live. Great guest. I have a question from why are the operation officers positions now on a five year contract term. Also, I've noticed a lot of CIA op. Uh, so there's, there's one question. Do you know why operations officers are on a five year contract term. I've never heard of
4: that. There must be something new that doesn't that doesn't make sense because a contract term, by definition, is not a staff officer. Right. I mean, I was a staff officer at the CIA. They, they were hiring me as though I was a career employee. That's what it You're was. an employee, right? Not, it's not a contract. There are there probably there may very well be contract case officers uh, that might be what he's talking about.
5: Uh, uh, and then also, I've noticed a lot of CIA operations officers don't seem to stay in as long opposed to other federal government jobs. Uh, fbi dhs etc were agents officers uh, where agents officers seem to do traditional 20-year stints and retire is the job itself that draining
4: yeah the being overseas and the travel and the uh, stress of it i I don't know what if uh, other agency jobs are draining or not because i've never done them i assume they are but uh that's the travel and the living overseas for 20 years that is draining that's hard on a family and some people are born to it and love it and thrive in it. And other people love it, but their families don't love it. And then other people uh, just don't love it. So I can totally see why that the attrition rate would be higher overall for career employees at the CIA. It's just no, uh,
5: being. Uh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Oh, I thought I'd interview you. Um you. Never mind. I forgot my question. There's one more. Um, what was the most difficult? Oh no, sorry. That, that was already there. Um, yeah, that's it.
3: I got, I just got one more question. Um, and you know, Jeff, I, I know we've already taken up some of your time, but if you stick around, we like to do a bonus segment afterwards for like 10 minutes or so. Um, but I got one more question before we, uh, finish the interview. And, and unless Dave has anything he'd like to get in there, but, uh, because you, you know, you are a very like cerebral dude. Um, and you know, you brought it up before. I mean, can you, tell me like what is it that you think maybe I'm getting wrong about the SEAL community that maybe I have this stereotype in my mind about a certain type of person <laughs> or a certain type of personality I what what is the reality What what is it that I'm missing here
4: I mean honestly I I've been out of that community for so long that I don't I don't I'm not an expert on uh, talking about that culture anymore I mean it's been just been too long I it is hard to argue with the pattern of uh, of things that have happened in the media for example um now i will say my time in i never ever never once came up against anyone that wanted to that committed anything remotely like what is some of the things that have happened in the last few years like the murders and the war crimes but i was also there not there during a time of war so i, I it's just hard for me to judge i don't i don't know because i don't i i kind of left that community and haven't uh, I'm not one of those guys that has kept uh, tabs right. on it and like kind of try to stay it in the culture and stuff. I just had other stuff going on, so I, I don't. That's why I can't argue with you about like about things that have happened there. Uh, otherwise, I would if I if I could have argued. No, no, I
3: wasn't trying to have an argument with you. I was kind of lo- wanting to hear the other side of the story. That's what I mean. Like if I,
4: if, yeah. if I So if, if there was a another side of it that I was like, man, Jack is not seen this other side. I would have definitely chipped in and been like, man, I get what you're saying, but here's the other part of that. I just haven't been around enough to know that other side. I I do know, like my cousin that is uh, just finishing Buds and is now in the community, is a stand-up great guy and is whatever else. And like my uncle's been there for 30 years. So I see the good people there. I I hear the bad story. When I was there, there was bad stories and there was um, drug use and things like that, but it was always uh, on the margins, you know?
3: right right not pervasive well, I just
4: don't know I, I I'm not the I haven't been there it's been too long since I've been there immersed in it to be able to defend it adequately it's probably my best answer I want to hope it is not as bad as you think it is but there have been bad stories that have come out and they're no, they're not in dispute at this point and like and, I, and I'll tell that I mean I straight up will say that to my family members like man that, the community's got to do something like this is a bad deal like there's something wrong here you know I'm, yeah my
3: i mean it, it's 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 to the point where like you know i'll be out at dinner with my mom and she'd be like lean over jack what the fuck is wrong with the seals I'm like, <laughs> oh.
4: my whole thing is when i when i would occasionally get criticized for like writing and making money writing about seal stuff by other seals i'm like man this is like your big concern like there's like things going on that you should really be concerned with in this community yeah. and Dudes writing books is
5: probably not the top of that list, so
4: I would probably go focus on these other issues before I'd focus on, on that. But that was a personal, like personal. No, you,
5: you're you're right. And Jack and I have talked about this before. Like I, I mean, I don't begrudge any veteran at all who uses. I mean, everybody has to make a living, you know, and and if your living is is writing about your experiences or writing about whatever or like Jack and I having that, having this, you know, this live stream, like we all do what we can and we present how we can. Um, I,
4: mean, I don't make a living at it. And, uh, but I, to me, it's, it's cathartic on the one hand, right. And then it is. It, people want to know stuff, Like we, we live in an open society. And despite what many, many people would tell you, 99% of seal shit is not secret. It is not like highly classified covered by NDAs. Like it's just not. So, if people want to know about it, that are citizens of the country we live in, and I want to talk about it, then why can't I tell them about it? Sure. And I don't make, I mean, I, I, can, I can honestly point an accusing finger at Jack and say, I don't make a lot of money talking about my SEAL experiences. I just don't. I'm not making a living off of it. Yeah. I mean, and I, honestly, I do it for free, and I have done it for free, because I enjoy talking about it and writing about it. Because and, and a lot of that's just for me personally. Like, it's good to
5: get it out. Well, we appreciate you talking about it.
4: Yeah, yeah
3: absolutely. And, and I do think it's great that there are, uh, there are former SEALs out there putting the best foot forward. Um, because for all the jokes and the shit talking we do do, there are also like some really stellar guys in Naval Special Warfare. And, you know, you don't really hear from those guys because they're under the radar and they're not interested in, they're not interested in being, you know, a live streamer, podcaster, <laughs> YouTuber guy. They don't care about that, you know, which, and I respect that. Um but you, so, you you know, you sometimes, you know, because those dudes aren't really out there, you end up just getting the sort of like Instagram weirdos. Right, the,
4: the bad version. That's totally true. Yeah. My dad's one of the, the latter. He will not, he doesn't do it. He's like, man, I don't. I don't want to get into all that stuff. But then he buys like Admiral McRaven's books, and like, oh, I'm like, oh, you like all those books? Why don't you write them? I mean, you, your dad is
3: like a, a bit of a, a legend, too, isn't he? Uh, in the uh, world of special <laughs> operations medicine.
4: Yeah, in the in the medical world, he's uh, he he is a big deal. Yeah, he could. I think he may end up one day writing a book about the TCCC and the combat casualty care and stuff like that. That's yeah, I, of- I
3: hope he will.
5: Yeah. Uh, okay. yeah me too. I mean, that's advanced. I mean, every war brings massive advances in, in trauma care and, and prosthetics, unfortunately, but it, right. but it, it does, you know, and at, at the end of the day, I mean, Jack and I rib on the seals, but it is like one team, one fight. You yeah, know?
4: it's natural. I, um, I don't have a big action to like jacks just
3: like a uh, <laughs> no, I, I told i told you once jeff the reason why i don't care for you isn't because you were a seal it's because you were an officer
4: <laughs> that's fair i guess we'll uh-huh.
5: we'll that one. i'm just glad it wasn't because he was a ginger um
3: no, <laughs> no, no. you have no souls but that just that just comes oh. with the territory that's not oh. even a problem come on
4: come to think there's a lot of things about me not worth liking you
3: know? <laughs> nah the ginger thing's not a problem
5: uh dj thank you very much that's a solid episode guys general kang krang thank you very much again uh and brandon marsh oh uh what are some of the similarities and differences between the military community and the firefighting community
4: um the uh so there's the the chain of command is similar they, the firefight the fire community will often call it a paramilitary structure meaning it's just it's not military but it's military light um so we have a we have a, a span of control, a chain of command, unity of command. You report to one person above you. Um, you know one person's in charge of a, a unit below him. So that that part of it's very similar. The the mission focus is ext- very similar. Um, the big difference is is obviously like labor and union rights. For most fire departments, are unionized and have spent years kind of arguing for and getting um, protections in the job and stuff. That part of it's different, but most for the most part it's it's very similar uh, there's a little less uh it's closer to a seal officer um enlisted mentality than it is a green army regular army mentality like it the officers they're the officers and they're in charge but th- your guys are still gonna like bust your balls and tell you when you're mm-hmm. messing up and like <laughs> kind of and you'd be a fool not to listen to the guys below you so that's very similar so it's a good community,
5: at least where I work. I'm sure it's different everywhere. Yeah, When one quick question I, that I remember. When you were in Afghanistan working with the agency, did you ever run into former like uh, teammates or people who you knew that you'd have to kind of give them the <laughs> shrug off or the you don't know <laughs> me?
4: No, in Afghanistan, uh, there. So that's a good question. It touches on tons of seals went to the agency after nine eleven. Uh, tons being a relative uh, word because there's, but the size of the community, but a, a lot. Um, I think the great majority went into the paramilitary side. Um, a handful went into the regular side, like I did, operation side. But uh, no, in Afghanistan, there, it was never really like a super secret who you were, which was nice. Like everybody knew. You could even be like, "Oh, I work for one of the government agencies." Like, oh, all, right, all right Like, it, it was never nearly, it was never as clandestine as at other places by design, because we yeah. wanted everybody, we wanted everybody to know who we were, and that they could come to us to provide info. We were trying to, because what's Al Qaeda going to do if they find out we're CIA? They're so they, they want to kill us no matter who they think we are. You know, like right. it, doesn't matter. it,
5: so it, it was never like, like the random crossing in the airport where you're like, "You don't know me, you don't know me, you don't know
4: me." Yeah. No, in fact, it would be the opposite. I'd be like, hey, man, should you come over here, too? Yeah, it'd be one of those.
3: Yeah, like some of George Hand's stories about doing, you know, low-vis stuff in JSOC, and he'd come across other operators in the airport, and, like, they have to kind of, like, look at each other, like, oh, they, like, skewed away.
4: (laughs) No, we, you, uh, so if you're operating, like, in a non-war zone, that's a different animal altogether. So if you're in a non-war zone, yeah, that that could very well happen. Because if I was... The, say theoretically I was traveling under a completely different name, uh, through a, a European airport and I run into this other seal and he sees me and I see him that could make for issues. In which case you just bug off, <laughs> make a beeline for the bathroom or kind of giving the old, not now, you know?
3: All right guys. I think, uh, I think that's pretty much it for tonight. I mean, great interview with Jeff. Thank you so much for, you know, your time with us tonight. Well, uh, nice. Thank you, everyone who joined us live. We had almost like 150 people watching tonight. Super hey, I'm cool. I'm
4: to mention Jason Isabel so that people will make a donation to veteran charities. Almost forgot. So I did it. There it was, Jason Isabel reference.
3: Hey, what, what, what the hell is that about?
4: Oh, hold on. I, I, need more, I need more information, Jeff. I, I, I'm constantly plugging this musical artist I love on Twitter. And uh, a couple people were like, hey, if you, if you mention him on this podcast, I'll donate money to... This a military uh,
5: veteran charity. Oh,
4: okay. So I was like, oh, i I almost forgot.
5: And oh. which which veteran charity are you are you plugging? Just in case any of our viewers want to want to throw them a few uh, bucks.
4: I decided. Right I, I don't really know. I, I tend to give the Naval Special Warfare Foundation because that's that's our seal uh, charity of, fa- of the family members of fallen. So that's as good as any.
5: So All if right, you guys, guys are feeling, generous, yeah, if you guys are feeling generous, um, give a give a few bucks to the Naval Special Warfare Foundation, uh, help out help some veterans.
3: N- next episode, episode 46 on next Friday, uh, another CIA veteran, uh, CIA analyst and targeter, Sarah Carlson is gonna be on the show. She has a new book coming out that I have to read this week before the next show. Uh, it's about her experience during the embassy evacuation from Tripoli, Libya. And I believe it was 2014 that happened, it was after Benghazi. Um, so it, it, was a, it sounds like it was a bit of a debacle getting out of the country. Um, I, I read the first chapter, I got to finish reading the book. So we'll, we will have her on next episode. Um, looking forward to that. And in the meantime, you know, please make sure you like the video, make sure you share it, uh, you know, leave some comments below, let us know what you think of the show so far. And if you're interested in supporting us financially and supporting the stream and also gaining access to the many bonus segments we do with our guests there's a link to the uh patreon page we have down below in the description
5: and and guys it's just i mean the minimum donation is a dollar a month which gives you full access uh so uh rock on and uh please do leave comments because we found out that that helps our algorithm while youtube is kind of plugging Fox and CNN and MSNBC independent creators are are having a harder time getting exposure. So we appreciate your support.
3: Smash that thumbs up button folks. And somebody, two people already gave us the thumbs down. Those are two thumbs down from two people who hate America and our way of life. And they're letting Al Qaeda win right now.
4: They probably think I'm too liberal to give a thumbs up to you. That's the problem. Damn it.
3: They, you know what, those two people, they hate the troops. They hate the troops, Jeff. (laughs) I don't know
4: why I don't know why they hate the troops so much.
3: I don't know either. I'll never understand. It's, just, you know?
4: it's disappointing.
3: All right, man. Jeff, thank you. Thanks again so much for coming on, filling in for us. Uh, you know, tonight, kind of short notice, um, just awesome experiences. And uh, we really appreciate you coming on here, coming into the trust tree with the baby birds and all that jazz. Uh, yeah. and thank being our first uh former SEAL on the show.
4: I was an honor to be here. I appreciate you guys having me.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I hope we do it again sometime.
5: And how do I turn this thing off? Here we go. Okay, guys. See you next Friday.